0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to the Hub. Good everything. We are here, episode eighty-one. Uh, Doctor Gray Carr in class with Carr. Hi. Good morning. morning. Hundred eighty-one.
1: Hundred
0: and eighty-one episodes. Something,
1: something really. We are. Uh, I saw the former dean of uh, Howard University School of Communications, the uh, legendary scholar and academic administrator educator Jeanette Dates, yesterday at a funeral. Interestingly enough, uh, she and she and her um, um, her colleague Clyde Barlow many years ago edited a big book called "Split Image" on African Americans and media. That's her best known work, but it does television, film, everything it was it was a bible for us back in the '90s. But at any anyway, rate, I saw her. And, I was like, how you doing, Dean? I hadn't seen her in a while. she has been retired for a while. She said, oh, Dr. Carr, so good to see you. I don't ever miss you. I see you always on the internet and I watch your class. And I said, what? So Professor Hunter, just another. That's
0: crazy. You. No, I mean, you know, this this thing is is global. This thing, when I say this thing, uh, this, this quest for knowledge, I didn't realize, you know, how much people wanted to be in community because it's more than just sitting, you know, and listening to somebody talk about history. <laughs> you know,
1: it's a thousand it, of those things.
0: Yeah, it's it's that you have created this circle around the tree for multi generations to mm-hmm. contemplate our place in in this world, right? Through mm-hmm. the lens of Africana studies and Africana ways of knowing, and uh, and that's for all people because we're all uh from that one continent and uh you have completely changed the way i see the world and i'm just grateful uh that we get to be here on saturdays and bi- beyond now in new yeah. Year, uh with yeah. a k and with an n how about that yes the,
1: n, the k and the n are together yes. <laughs> as it was right. supposed to be <laughs> no. and,
0: the, and the k ain't so silent y'all out oh. making noise so
1: <laughs> right <laughs> No, thank you. We're doing this together. We're all doing this work together. And it's a beautiful thing as it continues to just flourish here at the beginning of the traditional uh US school year, which we've we disrupted that rhythm. We're 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 together all year round. It just so happens that in August we go back into some of these formal spaces.
0: And, and even even how we go to school is around uh an enslavement calendar, right? It's around. Uh, you know, planting season, and harvest season, and, you know, um, the school day, like all of it, right? Like, we, we need to reimagine all, like, what does it mean to learn? And what what are we learning for, right? As we talk about today, the anniversary of the March on Washington, I was thinking, deep thought this morning, mm. about the validity of such a moment that we can celebrate, but As I look at the job, because it was a march for jobs, you know, as I look at the disparity in pay, as I look at the lack of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, as I, you know, I interviewed Lloyda Lewis, the wife of Reginald Lewis, the first person to own, you know, billion dollar company, Reginald Lewis, you know, there's most of our billionaires are still in entertainment. When I think about industries, I think about Walmart, that family that owns, you know, all six of them, still, you know, still in the top twenty wealthiest people because one man built something that's still here that his family, his children's children, are eating off of. I think about the trucking industry run by the Sikhs who just came to this country, right? So you have major trucking industries run by folk, uh, and they're warriors, they're badass, you know. But I, I'm like, what's our industry? Uh, hair care and nails in our community. Mm. Not us, even though we're the biggest consumers of it. Right. And so when I think about marching for jobs, all I think about are people begging for opportunities and humanities that we ourselves have not created.
1: Mm. That's uh, or or have created and have been under systematic attack. In other words, you know, no,
0: I'm not I'm not blaming us. I'm not saying there's something deficient. I'm saying that we have to reimagine what it looks like.
1: Right. That's the year. That's because
0: so let me let me you back up because I, you know, it's easy to you know mm, why are we doing this? Look at this! Look at this! Look at this! Look at this! Oh, you know,
1: we know that, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, we know there's a you know wider conspiracy, and we also know why. But if we're not conscious, right? We just
1: that's the key. It's
0: like, oh, what?
1: That's the key. I I
0: that. How come every Seven Eleven in my community? What? I'm buying donuts from what now? I'm just like, and my kids can't get a job here. Come on mm-hmm. now. And there's no no disparagement of anybody coming here or opportunities that they have. I'm just saying we must start to reimagine because we built all of it, all of the infrastructure
1: here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, how do we... Um, I think what we're doing and what so many other people are doing very similarly, although we like to think that what we're doing is is distinct in the sense that we are coming from a very uh, declarative perspective black space and not a black space, an Africana space. We're not trapped by race in the way. In fact, I was having that conversation with um, undergrads in my Education in Black America class this week, you know, but, you know, what we're all doing in terms of trying to help ourselves understand and regain that momentum of memory. It's very much diminishing returns in some ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. I went, uh, Yesterday, like I said, spent most of the day in Baltimore, I came back and sat down, said it needed to reset, and I hadn't yet seen Oppenheimer, so I went to see Oppenheimer. Now, now i got to go to Barbie so that I can compare the two films. But, I'm um, bump, that's a joke. Barbie is
0: <laughs> <I'm> like, what?
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, one's a movie, one's a film. But, uh no, I don't know what Barbie is, other than the cash cow. But, and Oppenheimer has, is, is, yeah. is, I mean, it has its moments of pretension. It's completely, it's three plus hours of dialogue, uh, if, for those of you had not seen it yet. And, you know, and just sitting there, listening to this back and forth, uh, Cillian, is it Cillian Murphy, is it, plays uh, the one who was from uh, Peaky, Peaky Blinders? Peaky
0: Blinders, yes.
1: Yeah, he plays uh, Oppenheimer. But this is a, it's a cast where it's almost like every white actor in Hollywood who wants to be affiliated with Gravitas in popular film, tried to get a role. Matt Damon was in there. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. was in there. It's like Harry Truman was a Gary Sinness. Uh, I forget what. Anyway, my point is this. Completely dialogue. There were some graphic moments, obviously. You know, we want to see the bomb exploding and how they're working on the technology. But it was basically three and a half hours of talking, which means you can't compare it to Barbie. But the, I mean, they was talking to Barbie too, I guess. But my point is that listening to them, lists, watching the Oppenheimer character at Princeton at the Center for Advanced Study, Robert Downey Jr. tries to recruit um, the character into being to direct the center. And he looks out of his window where his ostensible office is going to be. And he sees Albert Einstein out there throwing rocks in the pool. And the Downey character says, let me go introduce you. He says, I know him. Then he went out there to speak to Einstein, and then he, and Robert Downey from a distance sees the two of them approach each other, and then you just see Einstein walk past him and pass then. He said, what did you say to him? Nothing. And Einstein's against the bomb. <laughs> of course, he, he had written to the White House like, look, the Russians going to have this bomb. It's going to be a problem. But once you develop that technology, the whole movie, by the way, it, it can't be a spoiler, spoiler alert. If you ever read the book American Prometheus, <laughs> the, big book, the big book on Oppenheimer, but the whole i put it this way the narrative spine of the book isn't about building the bomb the narrative spine uh, of the movie and the book but the narrative spine of the film oppenheimer is about oppenheimer being persecuted by the american government because he has realized that i just let loose death on all of us and they they got him he's at a he's at a hearing from the beginning to the end of the film where they're quizzing him on communism, quizzing him on his friends. I know you're a Jew, but you get, but you got this Jew out of nowhere. One of them cats that came from England working this bomb was a spy. Now the Russians, they're obsessed with Russia, not Nazi Germany. And so he meets with Harry Truman, Oppenheimer's in the White House, and he's like, I have blood on my hands. And then Truman's whole face changed. He said, You know, this ain't about you. You didn't even drop the bomb. I dropped the bomb. And then you just see, it's like, you just see, all. I encourage y'all, you know, if you can stand listening to people talk for three and a half hours, but then again, uh, I'm talking about not Barbie talk, but like talk, like real, the Egyptians have a word, tef-tef. It means you're, rough translation, it means that you are talking, but there are no words. There's no speech. Like the Europeans, you try says to say it's idle chatter. So in other words, you've said things, but you've said nothing. There's no speech involved. So, or, or talking loud and saying nothing. As James Brown was saying, yeah. no question, no question. So anyway, I just it made me think about it because here we are back in the school cycle. Here we are doing what we're trying to do. And the question that you really raise with your uh, initial observations is, you know, how do we, how do we penetrate so that people can see the thing in front of them and be able to tell what's important and what's not, and then act on understanding what's important and what's not.
0: Can, is it a way because I, you know, I think what you do and me to a, a lesser degree on the mm. radio is simply no, I mean, I'm not comparing, I'm right? That I don't really have comparing only by this, you know, the scholarship that you have, mm. you know, that takes 45, 50 years of constant reading that you build on, right? Because there's sure. a compound effect, just like with your money, right? You save a That's penny true. every day, double it you know, you've done that with knowledge,
1: right? Right, right, Right. So so, so
0: everyone trying to catch, we're not going to catch up. All we can do is allow you to disseminate like the baby, you know, the baby birds that we are, Um. information, right? So chew it up. I can do it in some areas. There are other people that can do it in other areas. And we must go to those people who have put in 40, 50 years of scholarship Mm. Mm. and allow them to at least awaken parts of our brain that has been, you know, asleep, addled, atrophying mm. you know and and start to do that because you you were talking all 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 year about the the ban on books the actual ban on books which is a lack of reading 60% right. of adults 60% of adults have never never read a book 60% 60% have oh. never read a book cover to cover they haven't read a novel which is a whole other awakening of a brain you How know about that? And I and I just think about no. And again, I'm not wagging a finger. I'm just asking a question. How do we expect to build systems if we're not willing to do the discipline of learning something from beginning to end? I had a builder on my show today, uh, yes, uh, Thursday last time I was on. Mm-hmm. She's a woman been in con- construction. She's she owns a construction company. So I had her on because I'm you know renovating and I'm, I had it on for selfish reasons, but it it turned into a fascinating conversation about, you know, why aren't we controlling when Maynard Jackson was like, okay, the government contract set aside for black people. And then there were very few qualified folk and you could argue about access, but then you could also say you, you're master builders. Why are you, why aren't y'all 10 of you coming together an architect here and forming a company There's more than enough work out there. That's right. And when when it's time, we we need to be ready. But she said she went back to law school because there were so many changing regulations and permit mm. things. She, she went back to school to get a law degree, so that she can help her company expand. And I was like, how many people, whether you're opening a restaurant, are you going to you know culinary school, school learning different desserts just to even bring one spice into? your situation to make it different or better to, to expand on big mama's recipe, you know, are you going to business school to make sure your, your, your business is aligned? Cause it is always a business, whether we're talking about show business or, you know, actual brick and mortar. Yes. You know, so, so I'm also, you know, asking that question, like, you know, what are we reading? You know, and, and how are we reading? are we reading? And even, you know, I'm, I'm listening to books, but there's nothing that beats like you opening that paper.
1: No question. Come on. No question. No question. No question.
0: But how do we get people to, to even want to do that? And it's frustrating if you haven't been doing it, because it's like you, you like I'm uh, compared to working out. Cause I was getting back in the gym and you want to do everything in the gym. And I just was talking to a friend of mine. He pulled a stomach muscle cause you know, he's back in the gym. Kevin, Kevin, uh, Kevin Hart was trying to raise somebody. He pulled a stomach muscle. Like, you you know, like you got to work out, you know, you got to stretch. My contractor hurt himself because he's playing soccer with his kids. And I'm like, you ain't been out there. Like, so like you got to build up to, to being out there to make it consistent. And then you got to be gentle with yourself till you get there. But I'm like I'm asking people, there's a young man teaching himself to read, and it's really, you know, powerful and encouraging watching mm-hmm. him struggle through, you know, simple nursery rhymes and things. But it's also empowering because once he gets over that hurdle, there's a whole world of things that will open up to him. But that takes time and discipline. And are we willing to do that to get right. to the next place individually and then collectively? Well, so I'm just thinking I, about you know, that. No, I
1: mean that's that's important for us to continue to time. It takes focus, as you say, discipline, and it takes support. I mean, there, there there's an op-ed this morning in the, in the New York Times. Um, Bill uh, Ben Wodowski, visiting scholar at University of Virginia, he's got a book coming out soon, and he and the, the headline is "Let's Stop Pretending College Degrees Don't Matter." You're teaching yourself how to read. You obviously have some support. It could be living support, other people physically helping you. It could be digital support, technological support, some type of uh, program or video, you know, everything that's at a, a fingertip away on your phone or iPad or computer or have you access accessing technology or using technology to access information and instruction. But ultimately, if you're doing that by yourself, but with minimal support, it becomes incredibly difficult. And I think the exercise metaphor is, is striking because people want to exercise, want to work out, want to get back in shape, and they do it individually. It becomes very difficult because you are in your own head. As My friend uh, Aisha Imani, the founder of uh, Sankofa Freedom Academy, and our collective work to create a K-12 freedom school in Philadelphia, often said and says as a master teacher that she is, you know, sometimes we, she would get young people together and I observed her doing this so much that I, you know, continue, I, I started to practice myself. So I think the students are talking, everybody's excited, so everybody, oh, let's just be quiet, let's just center. And invariably somebody makes some noise. So what's wrong? Is everybody all right? And you hear a little titter of laughter maybe or a little more mumble. Say, so Aisha, always say, you know, the most difficult thing in the world for human beings in the society we live in now is to be quiet, why? Because when you're quiet, you're with yourself. And when you're with yourself, you're with everything that is in your head. And so we would say you're also with your ancestors, you're with your imagination, you're with your fears, your dreams, your anxieties, your hopes, your desires. And that can be quite torturous for people who have been socialized not to be quiet. That's why we had our conversation around the power of the pause. It's not really a pause. In a in a way in terms of life to borrow from Robert Perez Thompson the uh, the so called Africanist African art historian um, he says wherever you go in Africana societies you will see in dance in art in cultural meaning making a number of consistent themes or, or, or consistent practices one of them he, he identifies 10. We've talked about this before. When we did the Introduction to African States class. We talked about, we talked about cultural meaning making and ways of knowing. But he talks about this simultaneous suspension and preservation of the beat. So, you know, every time we come into the building, everybody hand go up to Three. And they stay there. And they stay there. No, when you up and up, you're suspending the beat, but you're preserving the beat. Well, when you are quiet, you aren't interrupting going around, moving back and forth. No, what you're doing is you're suspending all that noise and you're preserving that rhythm at the same time. But the suspension of that noise allows other hearing, other listening, deep listening, what the ancient Egyptians would have called um, medu, which is to hear, to truly hear. In fact, in Taotep, there's a phrase that says, um, when listening enters the hearer, the hearer becomes as a master. In other words, you, you've mastered the art of internalizing, of listening, and when you're quiet, you have to do that. And it's difficult sometimes to be quiet by yourself. Sometimes you, you, know, you have to work together. And so literacy is something that we see increasingly difficult. When Africans came out of enslavement, fought our way out of enslavement here in the United States, those of us who were in, in the room from the U.S., you know, learning to read was a collective practice. If you didn't know how to read, you had to literally find another human being to help you. And often that human being was of African descent before the end of enslavement, certainly after the end of enslavement as the schools began to rise. And I'm only raising all that as a, as, a, as a prelude to get into the conversation today. Again, we're, we're reverging on on the 28th of uh, August, Monday, that will be the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington. Today, uh, they are projecting anywhere from 50 to 70,000 people will descend upon the National Mall here in the United States uh, to uh, quote unquote, commemorate the march on Washington. There are a number of uh people, I think the event is being organized by Martin Luther King the Third's organization, um, as well as um, the Drum Major Institute is the name of it, and the National Action Network, that's uh, Reverend Sharpton. You know, and regardless of what you think of folks' politics, and including critique of their politics, a celebration or a support of their politics, it's very interesting to see. The roster of speakers, Martin Luther King's granddaughter, only granddaughter, will be speaking. Uh, Andrew Young, uh, Ambassador Mayor, Congressman Young, will be speaking. Of course, 91 years old, uh, one of the lieutenants of Martin King. Uh, Clarence Jones, not the King's lawyer. I don't know if he'd be speaking, but you know he's been invited. He'll be in attendance, at least that's what all the reports are saying. And you see the co-chairs of this 60, uh, 60th anniversary, including... Uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice and Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which, of course, gave us uh, Kristen Clark, the Deputy Attorney General, Black America's Attorney General. If I had to pick one and you don't have to pick one, certainly the people like Finney Willis and Alvin Bragg. and Shout out to Jim Jordan, the, the pride of the Ohio 4th Congressional District, who continues as he uh, continues to muck his way through a Corn Pong Clan adjacent public life. Uh, wants to now jump on Fonnie Willis, and I'm sure that would be a dance that both his little corn-prone feet would come off. I mean, it's not the wrestling met, Jim. Not that you spent much time paying attention to anything going on in wrestling at Ohio State, but shout out to Jim Jordan and all of his white nationalists, the and friends who are just determined to uh, hide behind the idea that there's something called the rule of law that isn't bent to cultural will. But back to the point, so there are a lot of other people. Uh, Legal Defense Fund uh, is, a, is a co-chair in the LACP, of course, the Urban League, National Council of Negro Women, National Coalition of Black Voter Participation, the Anti-Defamation League. And you need OSUS. All these are co-chairs. And then there's a whole list in this March on Washington. Uh, they're saying it's not a commemoration it's not a celebration it's a continuation and i would agree it is a continuation of a long struggle but between 1963 and 2023 there have been a lot of struggles in between and, and more that precede them uh but then when you look at the community partners it's just the laundry list everybody from the alphas and the children's defense fund to advocates for youth demand justice from the deltas to emily's list from dc vote to Jewish Democratic Council of America. I mean, it's everybody, National Black Justice Coalition. Everybody's listed up. They had a beautiful website. They got labor union partners. They got the, the Black uh, Christian community, AME Church, AME Zion Church, uh, Kojic Church of God in Christ, National Baptist Convention. I mean, you know, you see. To what avail? To what avail? And I'm saying that in the context of thinking about today's um, continuation. And we have to think about it in the context of the world we live in right now. And, and again, you know, the, what, what Professor Honor said at the beginning, I think, is very apt for us to think about what is important and what's not important. And how do we develop the capacity to tell? A great deal of that comes with study. A great deal of that comes with time. And no, nobody's going to, quote unquote, catch up to anybody else who has been doing a thing, for, perhaps their entire life. But the point isn't to catch up. The point is to do collective work, is to work together, is to do what Aique Arma, Baba Aique, sitting now in Popenguin, Senegal, has been talking and writing about now for decades, including his last few books, including "What and Shimsu, The Way of Companions, where he says, you know, we all develop our skills and we put them together. That's a theme in Oppenheimer. Robert Oppenheimer, um, New York Jew, with roots, uh, of course, in Europe. Went to school in Europe. You know, he's in. You see him in England, and you see him in in Germany, pre-war Germany, with Jewish scientists and scholars who are German, who were going to get run out of Nazi Germany, or exterminated. And you see Oppenheimer grappling with this, even as he is contributing to technology ostensibly to end the war. That is a war with Germany, but then the Germans surrender. But the Feds want him to keep them to keep going, and of course they drop two bombs on Japan, which he finds indefensible. Except he contributed the technology, but that's a, uh, that's not really the point. The point I want to make is that you know it's dramatized in the film, and of course explained in great detail in American Prometheus*, uh, the book that uh, Kai Bird, I think, is the mission. Uh, there's a long arc. We mentioned this in class uh, about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer. book American Prometheus but what you what you read and what you see in the film dramatized is this moment when the federal government represented by the Matt Damon character uh, colonel in the military trying to get Oppenheimer to lead and assemble this team after they've done their due diligence on him knowing that he his brothers in the Communist Party his brother's girlfriend you know that he himself you know got this married woman pregnant after driving this other lady insane who he was kicking it with, who he met at the Communist Party meeting. They, they got everything on Oppenheimer. But they still want him to lead what becomes known as the Manhattan Project because he's quite simply the best scientist, particularly when he's talking about quantum work in the United States. And so they they, they hold aside all that stuff they don't like until they need to pull out of their back pocket and screw him when the bomb has been developed. And as they say, we'll take it from here. But I'm raising on it to say that he can't build a bomb by himself. So he he takes up residence. He's first at Cal Berkeley. Then you see him come across to the East Coast and you see him in conversation there. And with these scientists that he knows and with students, beginning with one student in his class. And then you see them come as they realize he's got another way of thinking about physics. He's got another way of thinking about quantum theory. And so I'm sound like to say that at the moment that is dramatized in the narrative, the feds represented by the army guys like, look, what is it going to take for you to build this bomb to beat Germany and Russia from having the bomb. He said, I need my people and I need a place, isolation. Where are we gonna find an isolated place? Let's go to Los Alamos. Now what's glossed over in the film and many critics have noted this, is the indigenous people who lived there, who were there before, who they displaced. The only time you see them even nominally alluded to is near the end, when they ask him after the bomb has been built and dropped, and now they're going to move to the H bomb zone. Like what? And, and Truman asks him, "What should we do with Los Alamos?" Oppenheimer says, "Give it back to the Indians." At which point, Truman's face changes again, like, what the f-? and you hear him as he throws Oppenheimer out his office, out the Oval Office, the White House. Don't let that—I forget what he said—in here again. In other words. Thanks, but no thanks. But that's even not the point. I'm still in the footnotes. Let me get to the main theme. The theme is collective work. Who are Oppenheimer's companions? Oppenheimer's companions are the people, the other brilliant scientists, former students, protégés who don't know what he knows. He calls Einstein to check some uh, figures because, you know, he has now been presented by one of the uh, European scientists with the dilemma that if you create this fusion fission uh, reaction, you could set fire to the atmosphere and the whole globe burn," he says. "Are you sure?" He said. Are "You run that math again, but I'm telling you, it's a small chance." He said. "Well, you know what? Let me check with Einstein." So he calls Einstein, who you know doesn't want to blow up nothing, but Einstein is advanced this thing, and he said, uh, "Can you check the math?" And Einstein was like, "No, like you, we share one thing in common—not ideology. Now we do share one thing in common: we both have a disdain for math." Then he he said, go get the math guy. I'm not the math guy. The point is this. Einstein tells Oppenheimer, neither one of us are the math guy. You don't do what they did without a team. Our people seem to think that if you get 15 million followers on the gram or, you know, TikTok, whatever, you somehow created some, an influencer. Is it influence if the people don't do what you say? And is it influence if the people do what you say, but it's absolutely nothing. In other words, let's make a video. You're You're moving around. Yeah. Can you just be still? go viral with a thinking video. (laughs) Guess what? Somebody gonna do that and it won't matter. Now people gonna. but if people practice the art of being still a great number of the answers to our daily challenges are in our heads, in our memory. Um, But collective work is what we're talking about. And that's what we're talking about with the March on Washington. The March on Washington is an event that is constantly drummed into the minds of people. They might be able to, if you say March on Washington, they'll say, yeah. When was it? Oh, uh, I don't know. Well, who was there? Dr. King. Who else? Was uh, John Kennedy? I don't know. John, who's John, John Kennedy, right? Is Kennedy. Is it Nixon? Oh, man, I forgot. It was it Reagan. No, then the thing just starts falling apart, falling apart because it's a phrase, but it is a phrase that signals a, an event that is part of a longer arc of movement that is itself a part of a long arc of collective work. And here, here in, uh, in, in, in narrative here in Nubia, here in, in class, what we've been doing now for three plus years is just evoking moments that provide what Holly Grima calls points of entry that we can then use to study and identify those rhythms. And then we can, as we begin to know what's important and what's not, and how to tell the difference, we can then use these ritual moments as points of entry to renew ourselves. And it can truly be not a commemoration, but a continuation. But these are all narratives. These are all narratives. So a couple of things and then we'll we'll get into that. Um, As I said, today's article, um, Let's Stop Pretending College Degrees Don't Matter, gets to the heart of what we're doing here. Not what we're trying to do. We do it to the degree that it's effective in that. We can continue to see that. Uh, Everybody, again, the next the the next wave of folk like you, Prov, and so many others who went back to school this week, joining those of us who've been in school now uh, two weeks, three weeks near the beginning of August. The full momentum here in the United States of the school year is now being brought. There are a couple more weeks to go next week, of course, for September, you see another wave of folk come. And then we're in the rhythm, Uh, the Klan adjacents, the hillbilly horde, the white nationalists, they are fighting hard uh, curriculum wars all over the country. The uh, rather sluggish minded governor of Arkansas trying to stop the advanced placement uh, African-American studies course in Arkansas failed. Of course, Uh, there in Oklahoma, uh, uh, an onward Christian soldier, white nationalist, secretary of education, young boy, 38 years old. Forcing the 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 resignation of the superintendent of Tulsa uh, this is the same white nationalist secretary of education in Oklahoma who wanted the Ten Commandments put in the classrooms uh, who's trying to ban CRT uh, looks almost like perfectly cast for the role if you ever see a picture of him uh, and I try very hard not to judge people by how they look because obviously as Dr. king said you don't want to judge people by how they look and so I won't judge this man by how he look but how he acts speaking at moms for liberty uh saying that you know he and these other secretaries of education at the state level will now take it from the mothers and fathers and community people and billionaires and everybody else trying to stave up the white nationalism of course in florida the war continues uh a war that has been joined by those of african descent and others who are determined to teach what is correct in the classroom so anyway back to school we're in that rhythm and Last week in, 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 in my Education in Black America class, one of the reasons I love HBCUs is because if you have a class full of students, it's almost hard not to have someone in that class who has some direct knowledge and or relationship with something you're talking about in the African world. And so you all remember last week I mentioned the, um, the panel on affirmative action that was held in Martha's Vineyard, uh, sponsored by the Harvard Hutchins Center and PBS, I think it was. Uh, a week ago this past Thursday uh, Thursday was the 24th so it was the What was it 14 what is that 3 17th 17th of August? Uh, in, in Martha's Vineyard. and before I showed this clip that I showed to the students before I showed a clip to them So we could talk about it. I said well this this being Howard this being an HBCU. There's a hundred people in here I assume somebody in here has some direct knowledge of where this place is. So I named the little place they had at this church. Four hands went up. I said, tell us. I've been in Martha's Vineyard. I know people in Martha's Vineyard. I know where that place is. It's virtually all white. There's nobody black over there. It's okay, this is great. So they're filling in gaps. Now I have done research, so I know, but I wanted to hear directly. And of course, anytime you get that many students get, this is the value of black institutions. We saw it in Kemet, we see it here in, in Nubia. Anytime you get a bunch of people together, somebody knows something about it. In fact, let me see if I can take 15 seconds here and pull up the video. And I'm going to test that theory right now. And what I love, and believe me, all this comes together. Let me see. Affirmative action Hutchins conversation, Gary 2 1. And I'm here again. Here we are. It was hosted at. Who knows where the old Whaling Church is, W-H-A-L-I-N-G Church in Edgartown, Massachusetts. I have four students who knew exactly where that was. So this being a much larger classroom, thousands of people globally, I'm sure there are many more people just by virtue of the fact that you expanded that by only 100 students in that class. So let's go, what? a hundred or a thousand times that many, and we'll see. But at any rate, this is where the conversation on affirmative action was being held. And it was fascinating because as I said next uh, last week, I won't go back over this. I'm just gonna mention it here in the context of this article in today's New York Times, and then coming again, this question of collective work, which is at the spine of this commemoration, this continuation of, of the 1963 March on Washington. At this conversation, the whole thing was about quote unquote, elite institutions. By elite, I mean elite white institutions. By elite white institutions, I mean the Ivy League and Ivy adjacents. And so the whole hand-wringing and dilemma was about the non-white presence, chiefly the black presence at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, University of California, Berkeley, these type these kind of places. And it was a thoroughly pause. It was a revealing conversation. I won't say interesting. Um, some interesting comments were made. Of all people, John McWhirter made the comment, which I mentioned last week, that in the wake of the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 and then Brown II in 1955, the all deliberate speed phase, execution phase, which remains unimagined, McWhirter said he called it unfortunate accident and unintentional i of course absolutely don't believe any of that because i believe that what he expressed was a sentiment that people had before brown and continue to this day albeit perhaps worse in worse fashion since jim and jane crow have been removed american apartheid learns of legal apartheid in terms of education you know now it's now it's integrated meaning what give us your ball players and your 4.0s the rest of you Negroes can go to hell or wherever else y'all go when y'all don't play basketball sing dance or uh, score off the charts but the point is this integration that's what we mean by that, integration. McWhorter said, in the wake of Brown, unfortunately, people began to think that if a classroom is all black children with a black teacher, it's an inferior education. And I thought to myself, before Brown? Yeah, before Brown, John. Professor McWergan before before Brown, because if you look at that damn doll test that Kimmy and Kent and Mamie Clark did, you got these black children picking this white doll. And then they think the solution to it, in part, is to sit them next to the person the doll looks like. And, you know, these people, this is a Negro that's out of his mind, quote Malcolm X. So before Brown, this goes into the social science that went into the arguments of Brown, the harm of segregation, the harm of segregation. You completely misread what the problem is, which is Zora Hurston's point, which is why John McWhorter said Zora Hurston didn't agree and she was attacked for it. Another thing he said was, you know, white people didn't want to do Brown. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't do, want to do Brown. And he says, what you then have is this decimation, and this comes up again later in the conversation, this decimation of these Black structures. It doesn't mean the Black structures were perfect. They were not well-resourced. Uh, you know, they didn't have the books. They didn't have often the physical plant. What they did have was the will and the collective work. And that is something that has not disappeared, but has been very much damaged post-Brown. You know, 100,000 black teachers lose their jobs, as as our our sister Leslie Fenwick mentions in her book, Jim Crow's Pink Slip. If you haven't gotten it, I encourage you to get it. You see what happened to the teachers, post-Brown black teachers. But anyway, I don't get too far off into that. The point I want to make is that near the end of the symposium, I was in Egerton in July, but not as specific. See, see, it's what I'm talking about. I'm just scrolling through the Nubia chat. I know later in the YouTube chat, it's going to be a whole lot more dialogue. Very good. Uh, thank you. The, they opened it up for question and answer very briefly. One of the first people to speak was Walter Massey. Dr. Massey um, was provost of the University of California Berkeley when they ended affirmative action. He was the president of Morehouse College. He was on the board of the community colleges of Chicago. And he was talking about how there are a lot more institutions. In fact, most of the institutions in this country are not Ivy League schools. And in fact, remember uh, last month, I think it was last month, early last month, I, I read a uh, read to everybody a piece from an, uh, an op-ed that was in the Financial Times by Edward Luce. Uh, it was entitled The Moral Bankruptcy of Ivy League America. And, uh, and I keep that quote close now because he said that... Uh, Of the 31 million Americans aged between 18 and 24, just about 68,000 are Ivy League schools undergraduates, about a fifth of 1%. Of these, a varying ratio uh, are non white because uh, they benefit from affirmative action. Many are from privileged Black or Hispanic backgrounds as opposed to chicago south side or wastelands of detroit this is the basis on which ivy league claims to be deliverer of social change it's top-down social change skip Gates said at the beginning of the symposium he said we like du bois i believe you influence things from the top down i said don't put that on du bois don't do that professor gates or do it by, by all means do it but don't expect not to get pushback on that as du bois said in wither now and why 1960 the speech he gave at johnson c smith To the uh, social science uh, educators. He and his wife both spoke that day. He says, This is what's going to happen. The laws are going to change, and you're going to see a deterioration of education. You're going to see black children not want to go to school. Which is the point John McWhorter made when he said white people didn't want to do Brown. And then when they did Brown, black students started going in these spaces. And what they then began to develop was a real disdain for and contempt for school, which persists to this day. They said, these people don't want us here. We don't want to be here. That isn't the only reason we have this challenge. But when you read W.E.B. Du Bois's speech, 1960, spring 1960, "Whither now and why, delivered at Johnson C. Smith University. What he says is these laws are going to change and they're going to have to face the real issue. The issue is race and culture. And you're going to see black children begin to not want to go to school. Now, what had already started was the wholesale firing and destruction of the pipeline that created black teachers. By 1960, even certainly accelerating after 1965 and that decade of busing and black teachers just being decimated, people not going into profession. I'm saying I have to say that when Ben Wadofsky says, let's stop pretending college degrees don't matter. He's talking about the fact he ends it that he says, we often hear that the strong preference for degrees isn't fair to the majority of Americans who didn't go to college. But that majority is falling fast. And the percentage of college educated American adults is pushing 50 percent when associate degrees are included. And while the percentage of black and Latino college graduates is significantly lower, it is far higher than a few decades ago. In fact, in 1960, only 41% of Americans had completed high school. It might have been plausible then to argue that plenty of of dropouts had great talents and were unfairly penalized by high school diploma requirements. But it would have been badly misguided to oppose efforts to vastly improve high school graduation rates, which stand at 91% today. Final sentence, he says, college degree requirements aren't sacred, but they reflect the unmistakable reality that higher education helps people do well. That's true. But here's the challenge. And here's where, what we're doing and what everybody else is doing, who is working and what we like, we're working and why connecting people is so important in that work. All of that is important. That's why it's important. This is why it's important. the hierarchy in this society that has some people of African descent thinking the best way they can advance collective interests of African people is to get to the most elite white spaces and influence them or co-mingle with them or challenge them from the inside. All that, I'm not here to critique any of that. I'm saying that is the strategy that has been developed in part at the other end of this, no, at the center of the community. See, that's on the periphery of the community. You're talking about a tiny group of people. The best you can hope in those spaces is that that tiny group of people on the periphery of the social structure that we live in now is connected to the core group, because the core group is the majority. Most people in this country, most people of African descent in the world are in the core group. The periphery is the Black elites in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in North America, Canada, United States, wherever. Those quote-unquote elites, the, the challenge is representation. We've talked about that. When you walk in the room, are you walking in the room by yourself, or are you walking in the room as energy cooper said with the race with the people rather to borrow from um shamarka who said i don't use the word race i use the word populations so the, the the people of african descent are you representing us now representing us doesn't just mean your face is black even in oppenheimer i was laughing last night looking at the movie and every once in a while you see a little black face here's a black woman student clapping at berkeley and i'm saying was there a black woman student there now i got to do the research again and go back because i know it's not an american prometheus uh, there was a black guy at Los Alamos. You see him cheering after the bomb is going off. And you see, catch a glimpse of a black dude. I'm saying, is that a carpenter? Is he a scientist? We got to look, because we know we had Mr. Uh, brother Loeb, Henry Loeb, as Professor Hunter and I always talk about, the brother was reporting for the Cleveland Collin Post in the wake of Hiroshima, who had a background in science, a degree in science, but it was also a trained journalist who was writing in the black newspapers, Amsterdam News, about the effects of the bomb and radiation who caught it before any of the social structure white newspapers did, like the New York Times, which is why they highlighted Loeb years later to credit themselves for discovering a Negro who was writing in the black press. So I'm not saying there weren't black people around or there or in this like indigenous people or white women who were in there. Are a couple of white women you see from in display movie. But what I'm saying is that this kind of diversity approach. There's absolutely the logic of many people who are at Harvard and Yale and Stanford and places like that, University of Pennsylvania, Brown, uh, University of Chicago, who are at those institutions. And also, quite frankly, the logic of some people increasingly at historically black colleges and universities. I'm thinking about academic administrators, not the teachers, not the students. Although increasingly the students are gravitating, gravitate toward this idea that if you come to a HBCU, you too can make it. What does make it mean? Get a Wall Street job. Become somebody who can work in Disney and Hollywood. All that's important stuff. But let's be clear, HBCU logics that form in that direction. are I, I often say, you know, those type of administrators should probably stop saying that they represent or are or, or, or making policy for HBCUs. Their, their philosophy is DEIUs. It's a DEIU philosophy. It can be debated, it can be discussed, things can be pulled from it, but ultimately the idea that they are rock rock solid certain that this is the way that Black people should go is patently absurd because it reinforces the hierarchies that we are trying to explode. which means that when we're in space like this on Saturdays, when we're in Nubia every day of the week, when we're compiling a narrative, this huge archive and resource center to join with all other forces, What we are saying is we are doing it from a space that starts with us at the center. And the us is the overwhelming majority of people. So the access is not restricted by the mother may I magic words that get you into Cambridge or get you into Cal Berkeley or get you into West Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, or somehow find your way into Rhode Island at Brown. No, the mother may I is, pause, center yourself, use your technology to access. And come on in this space, listen, write something down, unmute yourself, come over on Monday nights, let's have conversation, put a post in, have somebody respond, then you respond, you develop all that rhythm, that rhythm. And that's the jailbreaking process that we haven't, um, we're not trying to achieve, we have achieved, even as we continue to try to expand. it.
0: But there's no degree right. So as you're talking, even as I think about John McWhorter and others, there's a benefit to the commentary, right? There's a benefit to these universities being uh, what you call them, right? Because that's how you get money. That's how you get money so that you can keep the lights on. So, So I don't even think they've thought whether or not they're there to help the students as much as college president's main job. And I tell my students this is to raise money. We, we think college presidents are these, you know, scholarly folk who are there to help you learn more. No, they're there to raise. It is a business. I tell my students this day one. So don't spend six, seven years in here getting a liberal arts degree. This is a business that is here to take your money. And we professors are here to serve you. So even professors that are abusive to students got it twisted like you're you know, you, you're only there because students pay money to come to school. Right, so so even the folk that are on TV or at these conferences or being paid tens of thousands of dollars to speak in different places. There's a benefit because they get paid to to talk that talk. And at some point, you know, much like some some of my friends that I don't really speak to anymore, I realize, <laughs> and so I can't even call them my friends. Right, because I'm also juxtaposing them to what you know what it is that I am committed to doing, I can't really hate on them, but they have forgotten, you know, like it, the money is so good, Dr. Carr that at some point you've convinced yourself that you're doing it for the high. So I'm going to do, I'm going to talk this talk, even though I don't believe it, but at some point you might believe it, the things that you're saying. Right. And so, you know, there's a point of no return. And for those of us who consume this content, you know, how do we discern? Who's who's there to help? You know, and, and how do we even suss out what's right and what's wrong? Because it's a lot of noise. It's a lot of noise. So so how you know what skills do we need to be able to say, oh, I like this person. They make me feel good, and I'm rah-rah for the moment. But that question from Sonia Sanchez, how do we free us, doesn't enter the equation, and we don't really even know how to navigate that question.
1: Uh, I think I think we have the innate ability as humans. I think that. Institutions matter, which is why what we're doing is so valuable and we hear it over and over again, as we've been talking about. And we know both, we both of us know as teachers, when we are interacting with students and have content for them to consider, what invariably begins to emerge is the application of those innate abilities to problem solving. The challenge is the content isn't provided. That's why your metaphor of breadcrumbs that you gave us at the very beginning was so very important breadcrumbs are important but you won't necessarily pick them breadcrumbs up if you're by yourself
0: but but even that i mean we're both individuals i'm in the in the other chat um texas girl mom she te- she's a teacher she says she used to teach shakespeare like it was the young and the restless and she said she had her kids you know who had all the grandparents lo- looking at the stories like they were soap operas and 500 year old victor newman or jack abby like she she would right. make it relevant to them but that's an individual's creativity break that's not a system there's no like textbook for the next teacher to learn how to teach Shakespeare through the lens of young and the restless or one life to live a general hospital you know what I'm saying it's like
1: well, if, if, if there was a time when she would have been in a school in a segregated school where everybody knew that and where those teachers knew each other and the students could gravitate toward the teachers whose styles they benefited of course desegregation smashed that now the black teachers are not there but in some ways This is a space like that. Like if she were here doing that right now, there'll be other teachers who will pick up on that. And of course, what we have with Nubia is the capacity now with the teacher's lounge for people to connect with people so that I heard you, I tried that out or here's what I do and they exchange. The thing that's missing, not missing, the thing that remains our challenge is to then have that translate into real life. And that's what we saw in Kemet. People who knew each other well in Nubia People who knew each other well from being in class, who then first, but the first time they physically saw each other and interacted, it sparked another level of developing common work, shared work. That was the theme every day. How we going to keep this shared work going? And so it seems incremental. I was like, I was walking off campus Thursday afternoon, finished my class and coming down the hill. And there was a cluster of administrators standing there who, you know, I knew a couple of them. I spoke one of the sisters. Breaks off from the group as I'm coming down Here's, the car's here. The car is I'm a newbie. it's working. The point is this <laughs> the whole idea is people are now taking things back. We don't know the rooms people are in that would say, I saw this teaching method, I think this is fascinating. So, the curriculum development conversation, say in Patterson, New Jersey, where the teachers professed about where somebody saw that sister here do that and say, Let's try this. We you can't quantify. This is a society where if you can't quantify, you can't yeah. get a grant, you and that's grant. that's
0: that's my point. So yeah. how does how, do, how does one benefit? You know, and and as as you know, I think about the administrators at my school, the ones at your school, they don't even know what we do in the classroom. They don't even know. Like I'm I'm looking at my department teaching journalism. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what is journalism today? Like, how are you teaching these kids for what exactly? You know. So I made a commitment this year. You know, to teach them the business of media and how to really you know understand what is media what is not media and how you know like to be developed as people they're going to get a broad range of experiences and then they're going to have the, their sleeves rolled up and get hands on but that's not something that could have been on a syllabus that I could you know what I'm saying that I can even share with somebody because it's my lived experience that I'm bringing to the table it's not not something that the school can codify or even monetize when you, when you, you know what I
1: mean when you share it here and those students go back into wherever they're in school and ask the professor about what you shared here, it breaks down. In other words, that's what we can do. Like we can't control Howard, Hunter, more how We can't control, but what we can control is like what we do here is what we do there. And we're putting it in a place where as more and more people, anybody who comes can now take that back in those space. To me, that's what jailbreak is. We're not trying to change those systems. Because those systems are unsustainable, and they will collapse under their own weight, or they will have to be transformed. Every generation, people challenge the university as concept. We saw, we saw, we saw it at Hunter. That's why there was a Black and Puerto Rican Studies step. We saw it at Howard. That's where there's an African-American Studies that was '69. Then, in the late '80s, you see another wave. Then you see another wave in the early arts. We just saw another wave in the last couple of years in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Amara Aubrey. These things reach inflection points and that's why even with the march on washington is important because it's not the ritual it's the conditions that force the ritual you see it's it's not the ritual it's the, it's the conditions that force the ritual now at that moment what do you do with that moment and so what we're doing here what we're doing in narrative what we're doing in nubia what we're doing every week in class with this really inestimable global convening like a metronome every saturday What we are doing is seeding, connecting, and getting out of the way, and then it becomes something that just continues to echo and impact. And that is beyond the capacity of structural education formations to to disrupt. Somebody in the chat, in in the first chat here, in, in the app mentioned um let me see can i pull it up right quick because people are talking real fast and that's a beautiful thing i love that um yeah mighty e said i will never forget scotus, SCOTUS supreme court of the united states scalia saying on record in fact black people are too stupid to go to college this was based on the university of texas the university of texas yeah i remember that that was oral arguments for fisher the fisher case sarah fisher versus university of texas austin the affirmative action case that was most important prior to this summer and Scalia, who of course died, as you mentioned, before he could ever write his, encode his, his, his foolishness, was like, you know, HBCUs, maybe that's good, because maybe the students shouldn't aspire to go to the University of Texas, Austin. Maybe they should go to a slower track school. I embrace that. I embrace it wholeheartedly. I embrace uh, Justice Scalia's elitism, because my elitism makes his elitism look like nothing. Because your people ain't never built no pyramids, no tombs, no temples. They didn't invent a writing system that influenced everything. They didn't create the calendar system that we use today. They weren't the first astronomers. That's not your people, Tony. Tony, sky, sky, sky. In fact, your people, are uh, our people are your people's great, great grandmothers and fathers. So, you know, if we talk about slower school, we perhaps need to go to 12th century and 13th century and go to uh, Europe. But for the origins of the university system we have now that has us still walking around in monastic, hot ass monastic robes in May, as if that's somehow uh, some testament to higher education. But if you want to if you want to dance, chief, we can dance, sir. We can go through all the world history and then we can play that game, but you'll you'll lose. So if you want to come back and have that dance, you can. But the point that's being raised is a very important point. What we're doing ain't got nothing to do with none of that. Meaning what? We're not talking about Ivy League schools or HBCUs. We're not talking about community colleges or public education versus private education. We're talking about a readily accessible resource that we can all have access to, that we all have influence in shaping, that strips the mask off of these institutions and leaves us with the ability to discern what we can and can't get from those institutions. You, you go to school for licensure. You go for skill development. You go to be exposed to ideas. You can get exposure to ideas here every Saturday. You can get skill development in Narrative and Nubia as practitioners do this work. And you can then decide for yourself which is the price point in terms of point of entry that you're going to pay for, for enhanced skill development, exposure to more content, and also licensure and cachet. A great deal of the Ivy League thing is the brand. I got hella resources. You got a lot of stuff you can't get other places. But I will say this parenthetically, I will put what we do every week, what we do on Monday nights and office hours against any class or any conversation anywhere in the country, any place, perhaps even especially the so called Ivy League. And then the thing is, oh, we're open. Anybody who's from there and want to come in this space, we can have a conversation about it. But here's the thing. What it reveals is what you can and can't get from those spaces and what's important and what's not in those spaces. And so I'm saying all that in the context of, you know, this ritual moment, March on Washington, remembering, because, and then again, that was just parenthetically, what we're doing is is creating a space where we can all convene and convening is, is critically important. What we have to do to take another step in the direction of, having this continue to be very useful and transformative in social groups we have to remind ourselves of who we are how we have moved and and remember these things so I want to uh let me see if I have yes 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 I'm gonna put this up I was gonna mention this one but I'm not going to that book uh yesterday I spent the day in Baltimore um at a Funeral, a ritual, of initiation into eternity, as we would call it, a home going, as some folk call it. For my dear, dear friend and colleague, Dr. Audrey May Bird, this is Audrey Bird. Audrey Bird was a member of the faculty at Howard University for decades. She was the director of the Walter Annenberg Center and the Walter Annenberg Program. Uh, Annenberg, of course, is the Reader's Digest family. They give out so much money. USC has an Annenberg School. Uh, University of Pennsylvania has an Annenberg school. How University has an Annenberg program. They gave a few coins for an honors program in the School of Communications. And um, so we went up yesterday to the ritual of initiation into eternity at Doswell Cathedral, Church of God in Christ. Kojic! That's why I said I was in Baltimore all day. (laughs) You got to love black people. So I was sitting in there with a bunch of former Howard students, her, a lot of her babies were there, so-called babies, you know, Victoria Kirby organized a bunch of folk. And then there were others there, the former uh, members of the board of the Annaberg program, some of her closest children, uh, Angie Porter is one. Uh, Angie's mother actually came into town. Miss um, uh, Jordan was there, Barbara Jordan, who, who, who attended it with the funeral as well. Uh, Angie's, uh, you know, sister, uh, who was a television reporter anchor and uh, reporter in Memphis uh, right now uh, Brittany uh, She and Brittany were together um, Brittany my uh, from Southfield, Michigan. Y'all know Detroit, you know, Southfield is is, is, is an island in Detroit Good sister uh, Brilliant sister. In fact, they they traveled to Kemet together with us back in 2009 Giselle Hunt was there who went on that trip as well but anyway, they're all grown now. Children, you know, uh, Fatou Sal who teaches at Howard now. Uh, all of these were the children of Audrey Bird. Audrey Bird had like one life with an extension. In some ways, Howard, the Howard people, as Vicky said yesterday at the ritual, the Howard people looked at her as as theirs, as a quote unquote bison because she shaped so many lives, so many young people. I mean, brilliant sister. Again, she's over the honors program in the school of the C until she retired in 2020. She, uh, but she was born and raised in Baltimore and she never left her church. In fact, her godparents were the founding bishop of the church. And so her anchor, her center, her way of knowing, her governance formation was church God in Christ was Dyswell Cathedral, Church of God in Christ. And as one of the elders who spoke yesterday, who was seven years old when Ardie was six and they went to school together, said, she said, when they moved to, when she moved to DC to go to Howard, first as an undergraduate, and then as a member of the faculty years later, she said, we were like audrey you leaving she said no I, I, my home is in washington dc i live there but my church is in baltimore And she never she would be up and down that highway constantly she was the minister of music a beautiful in fact let me just let me just mention this here um she began playing music at four years old and by eight she was playing for the dieswell temple senior choir she was the minister of music at Dyswell Temple. talking about ways of knowing centers and peripheries elite institutions know the people this is our governance formation, and it was on display yesterday. Uh, she played in all the services, wrote music. She was the uh, minister of music for the Maryland Central Jurisdiction Church of God in Christ. Um, and she wrote an original composition, I will do a new thing. If you got the African-American hymnal, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I didn't pull my copy. I know I got about two copies around here. I hope they both ain't in storage. Go to the African-American hymnal and look at number 568. Reverend Wright, Reverend Dr. Wright, Trinity United, call Otis and them, tell them, look at number 568. Maybe put it in a rotation for Sunday in memory of Audrey Mayberg because I will do a new thing is her composition. She's in the African-American hymnal. The people at Howard say, also our professor, our beloved teacher. Yes, it's very true. Uh, she worked in the DC public school systems. She did a lot of other things, but I'm just mentioning it today because that Kojic funeral, which it's supposed to start at 11 o'clock. They started before 11 o'clock. The viewing was at 10. They had to start before. Why? Because, you know, them Negroes played all of the good old good ones. I'm in there singing all. Oh, my God. They played all the good old good ones. You know, them old school songs. Audrey bird wasn't known as an old school pianist. She liked to play that that, that kind of classical European stuff. But also to him, she was a master musician, choir director, all this. But to, yesterday they played that stuff. Boy, these Negroes got up. One started running up and down the side. I said, in a minute, it's going to be a bench walker in here. This is entirely, this is entirely appropriate. We sitting there. And this is what Angie Border means when she says protocol. It's a protocol. It's how you move. And yesterday I was in an Africana space, y'all. I mean, an Africana space, a space of African people, the music, the whole movement. I wish I could have transported my black aesthetics, my afternoon class that I teach uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays at Howard. I wish I could have transported them to that space, because on Thursday, we went through some of these canons of cultural meaning making that I was talking about earlier that Robert Ferris Thompson identifies polyrhythm or multiple meter, as he would call it, the get down quality, how we'll go all the way now, come all the way back up in movement, and art, all these things, um, correct entry and exit, how you enter a space or exit a space, all this. I mean, that protocol was really on display. There was a sister who was like the deputy superintendent of education or instruction or religion, religious education. She introduced the superintendent now, both these ladies had killer hats on. The little pillbox joined. the other lady, she had a a pillbox with like sparkly uh, stones in it. I almost looked like Elijah Muhammad Cooper. I'm like, this is a beautiful thing. Watch these Africans. Of course dressed in black. And the one sister that she spoke, she said, "Now let me introduce to you and bring to uh, the dais uh, the superintendent." I'm like, you can't. Black people undefeated. Black women are gods. But black I mean, but the whole point is I mean, undefeated. Watching this protocol unfold if all of our people think about this, and I asked my students in education in Black America this on Tuesday morning in the class, teach that class. I said, How many of you all learned your first steps in protocol and education in uh, something that I'm a graduate of? And I said, vacation Bible, put my hand out, all of them, it's 100 kids in school. Vacation Bible School, VBS. What y'all know about VBS? People start sharing stories. I said, or its predecessor, Sunday School. This is because we're going to read a book, James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, where he talks about coming out of enslavement. And even before the end of enslavement in the United States, Black people use the church to learn how to read. And so Sunday School becomes this. This is not Harvard. Harvard versus Sunday School. No, Sunday School wins every time. In fact, if you got some home training, another word for protocol, you know that your literacy started before you ever went into the schoolhouse door. And if you were lucky, the teachers were an extension of your community. That's what they smashed during Jim Crow in 54. That's what they were talking about or or avoiding in Massachusetts last week, which I'm going to come to back in a second, top that Walter Master story and bring it forward. But before I do that, I just want to again emphasize what we're talking about right now. We're talking about how you work collectively to common purpose and how education, even if started as an individual point of entry, can quickly find others so they didn't just resource Courses, Harvard and Yale, it's support. And it isn't just support that says, I want you to come to me. No, it's support that says, I'm coming from the center, from the core, and I will take this to the peripheries. But the peripheries don't define me. It is the core to define me. So the point, let me finish up this point. Uh, Walter Massey stood up former president of Morehouse, before that, Provost University of California, Berkeley, when they ended affirmative action in California, later on, on the board of the, of the community colleges of Chicago. So those of Chicago, you know, Kim, Dr. Delaney, you all know, uh, Valethea Watkins, my colleague at Howard now taught at Olive Harvey. So you've got Kennedy King, you've got Malcolm X, the, the community colleges of Chicago. Walter Massey says, we got a lot more institutions than these Ivy League schools. He's sitting in the vineyard. He says, I enjoyed the conversation, but let me put this in. In a a way, he gestured toward what Luce identified in that article from Financial Times. The vast majority of human beings, they're never going to see the indoors of a church of a a Ivy League school. And contrary to what Skip Gates. Misrepresenting into my reading, W.E.B. Du Bois had to say about integrating from the top down the Vernon Jordan philosophy. That transformation is not gonna come from that way. Not that we shouldn't have some people in there fighting. I think we absolutely should, but please do not look mistake the periphery for the core. The core is the people, is us to the degree that we can we can create a us. After after Dr. Massey finished, nobody said anything. Because they ain't here for that conversation. And Charlene Hunter Galt, who was moderating, said that is an interesting topic for another panel. Skip, you'll have to do that one. He said, uh no, 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 please. As Ethiopians say, I love how highly when they use the word, excuse me, the phrase, excuse me, it's like we're going to disrupt that. That's another panel for another day. I could hear. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. In other words, we must stop right now. Forgive me for disrupting whatever you was about to say next. But you about to miss the point. Dr. Massey made the point. The point is y'all up in here talking about getting three more Negroes in Harvard and how with the dilemma or not of how to do it with some brilliant minds. Randall Kennedy, Melissa Murray, you know, John McWurder, you know, Henry Louis Gates, whatever you want to think, having this argument. Okay, it's very nice. Uh-huh. But the vast majority of people are not in that conversation. And what we're doing puts all that formal institutional education institutions closer to the periphery anyway, because what we're doing is in a deliberate, determined work to reduce our reliance on that kind of hierarchy because that's not going to free us. It can be used as a tool, but it's not going to free us. Now, as if after that non applause if you watch the video, you see what they're clapping on, not clapping on, you understand this very well-heeled community. You know, I'm not saying majority white, but it looked like it was. I don't know. I've never been there, but a lot of y'all have. Some of y'all have. A young sister gets up after Massey and says, I got a question, and I'm not going to belabor it because I wrote it down. She says, she, asked, she basically asks, how does this, and in fact, you could probably pull it up, Professor Hunter, but it's, um, it's the Affirmative Action Hutchins, H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S. The Hutchins is a woman and man, husband and wife, who've given millions of dollars to Harvard. In fact, Gates made the point at the beginning. They've given more money to African-American studies than any African-American studies program in history. Yeah. But we got people. We got people. There are two superpowers in the world. One is nuclear weapons, I guess, maybe money. The other is the people and the people are really the superpower. So as we're growing, we're not going to be distracted by, you know, somebody gave a bunch of money. Okay, and so you wrote another book and a thousand people read it. That's great. Fifteen hundred. Well, two thousand people. Okay, that's a fraction. It's a fraction compared to what we're doing. And we can even read that book together and have some comment. In other words, we we don't get distracted. The people are the superpower in society. And the more you organize, the more we come together. The more we can transform. Anyway, anyway, the sister comes up after Massey, and she says it's near the end of the the, the conversation. Uh, she she reads off her phone, and she basically says that post Brown versus Board of Education, there was this increasing desire to adopt white values, white structure, white access, and higher education. How has the undermining of black institutions, where values, structures, what I would say, what Angie Porter would say, protocol comes into play? How is the undermining of that defeating what we want to do? And she said, anybody can answer. And she she named this guy Lee, who writes for the New Yorker, uh, Asian American. She said, I would like everybody, anybody, to answer, including you. And so he begins to answer. You say that's interesting. I haven't really thought about that. I guess that there's a struggle going on in the Bay Area right now where you've got black teachers saying that, you know, uh, they understand that the unique challenges facing black students. And, and why is it that when a school closes, any school closes it has to be the black school. And then you hear a smattering of applause. Clearly, some black people trying to get something going because you hear the hard clap when you try to get everybody clap. It dies very quickly. And then. He goes on and says, you know, so I don't really know if that's a good answer, but he don't have any idea on the history of education among African people in this country. And that's not a critique of him, not his area. But he tried to answer the question. After that, uh, Charlene hunter gall says, anybody else? Melissa Murray, Randall Kennedy, Jamie Warder said nothing. Walter Massey and that sister asked the only relevant questions that day and they couldn't answer why because our focus isn't on the we our focus is on the me and the you and the you and getting into Harvard and from the top down changing everything how's that working out for you but the point is this the collective work we're talking about has moments within a governance formation a governance formation that was on display yesterday at Doswell Cathedral when we were at the ritual for hours of Audrey Maybird and watching the protocols. Not without criticism. A lot of men in the ministry. It was some women, but not a lot of men, and not a lot of women sitting on that podium. And the podium was full. You know, it's Koji. We was going <laughs> we was going in and said this is Koji." So you know we're gonna be here, and I'm here for it. My God. Mm, mm, mm. the music and the organist was in control of the whole room this negro i mean and they, they got a program right so but you know he over there that rumbling and you see people start moving in this ain't in the program where i'm gonna send everybody about this church the ushers were flawless Said, said, where the funeral programs so everybody calm down these ushers are pros i'm watching these ushers why they're gonna wait till everybody's seated then they're gonna come down the aisle count program one by one and hand them out why you Negroes ain't program hoarding but if you're a professional if you know what you look this is black you talk about black excellence you want to see excellence go to the old school black church go to the black mosque Go to the protocol of the black bar shop or beauty parlor and just sit, as most deaf might say, observe the excellence in this. This is what we see. Now, at a critical moment, it's getting hot for these Negroes in here. What do they pass out? Professor Hunter, if they're at church and it's getting hot, what are they going to pass out?
0: You know, a fan, a fan, of course, a fan. It's fan, people, right? right? gonna, Martin, it? the fan right? Who's gonna be better be on that fan? Martin Luther King better be on. You better, you better do that.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> now I apologize to the Star Wars Utters <laughs> <laughs> of Doswell Cathedral Church of God in Christ for my moment of petty theft. I'm sorry because I saw him collecting the fans, but I must. I asked the sister, "Please, can I have a Martin Luther King?" <laughs> she said, "Yes, sir." I said, "Thank you, thank, thank you, Nana. I appreciate that because I need this fan. <laughs> oh my goodness! There's a museum. Somebody in Nubia will know if y'all put in, or even later on in YouTube, because somebody had to post that. There's a, there's a, there's a church fan collection. I think Randy Burkett and his scavengers got a hold of it at Emory, maybe because it may have been part of." Uh, the Billups Hatch Billups collection. Anyway, but there are there are extant collections of church fans. Maybe Auburn Avenue. I was been so many places this summer. Maybe it's a Schomburg. Anyway, there are people can look for it. But you know, I got a few of these. But this Martin Luther King. Come on. The reason I bring this up is because there's an American flag motif behind him, and there's Dr. King. Toward the end of his life, when he's gained a lot of weight, the man didn't make it to 40 years old. The stress. And eating late and smoking cigarettes and all that stuff is, is taking its impact on him. But to this day, ritually wise, children who can't tell you, adults can't tell you much about the march on Washington. But you go in a in the right Baptist church, Kojic Church, Methodist Church, Catholic Black Catholic Church. If they hand out the fans, it's going to be Martin Luther King on the fan. You know, he's he's in heavy rotation still, as Dante would say. To this day, he's still. He's still in heavy rotation, and this is the weekend when I have a dream will be played ad infinitum. Uh, this, of course, is the uh, and you can get the, the collections are everywhere, but I like this one because this one James Washington edited. I have a dream writings and uh, speeches that changed the world because Coretta Scott King wrote the introduction, and this is a cheap edition. Cheap edition, Harper San Francisco, still in print. But Dr. King gave that address, and he the first part of that speech, Clarence Jones, who's supposed to be there today, Clarence Jones was one of Dr. King's lawyers, one of his confidants, one of his people who would draft language for him. I don't hesitate to call them speechwriters, because as Andrew Young said, it's impossible to be a speechwriter for Martin Luther King, but who generated language for him. Sometimes he would riff on it. Sometimes he would r- do it verbatim. Sometimes he would just take it as inspiration. You know, the great Vincent Harding always talked about and, and wrote about uh, later how he helped with the why I um, opposed the war in Vietnam speech from April 1967. Clarence Jones was in the conversations Dr. King was having that led up uh, at the Willard Hotel that led up to the speech that he gave August 28, 1963. Clarence Jones is still here an ancestor hopefully he'll be 102 for the 70th anniversary but he's here here in 92 for the 60th and you know he he has a uh, um uh, a memoir that just came out by last of the lions so if you want to read more about clarence jones you can he also wrote a book on the speech itself and how he helped and he talks about dr king being in a in a room with his lieutenants, and they're talking about what he should talk about. And he t- and he asked Clarence, you taking notes? Clarence said, I wasn't, but I will. And he told Clarence, write down what you think people want me to say. Different people. Sit down, you know, look at some stuff, listen, in, put down a few. So he, Clarence Jones said, I put together seven paragraphs. And he said, I was shocked when King got up that day that the first seven paragraphs of what he said were what I wrote verbatim. Wow. Now, you know, how do you check the veracity of that? There are papers that the Martin Luther King papers at Stanford. I suspect that when volume eight comes out, we've all been waiting on volume eight. There's a new director there taking over for Clarence uh, Car- Clay Carson, who was the longtime editor um, of the papers. You know, seven volumes have been out. I'm looking around like I could put my hands on all seven. They're around here somewhere, but volume eight will be coming out. And that's the volume that will include the March on Washington stuff, correspondence, and things like that. But of course, when we hear Dr. King say, Five score years ago, 100 years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came into the great beacon light, the hope of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. Paragraph one, as Clarence Jones, paragraph two. But 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Clarence Jones said, I had worked with King so long by then that I had his cadence, his voice in my head. Speech writers do that. Now, Dr. King is not here to say, Clarence, you know that wasn't a word for word, but it's probably close enough. Again, this is a governance conversation. We're not looking for social structure commentaries. We're talking here in the space. He goes on and says, 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the vast, in midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the, on the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. But this third paragraph, I think, is the one. That we often, well, we don't often talk about, but we talk about more and more because, again, ritual moments allow us to see how that point of inflection symbolizes what became what came before and what came after. The rituals aren't important in themselves. The rituals are important as moments to collect ourselves, to pause, to reflect, to be. That's why going to Audie Bird's funeral yesterday was so important for us because, you know, this is who this sister is. This is who she is. This is who she was to you. This is who she was to you. But when you come here to the core, to the people, to the place, you see who she is in her fullness. And some people for the first time found out that her life was not in the School of Communications at Howard University. Her life was in Baltimore and that extension of her life was down there. And you can just see the transformation in addition to so much good music. My goodness, I almost jumped up and ran out of them myself. But see, that would have been wild. Anyway, but uh, so Dr. That, that King here says, so we've come here today to dramatize, this is what marches are for, dramatization, high theater. So we've come here to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architecture of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was the promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, the gendered language is there. That's got to change. In fact, in about five minutes, i put my timer on, we're going to get to the meat of the March on Washington because we've talked about this before. If you go to uh, session 64, session 77, you'll see us talking about it. But we're going to take it to one of the sisters who we recover our momentum of memory by thinking with, <laughs> by reading what she wrote. And that, of course, is the only woman who was on the planning committee of the March on Washington. The only woman, the on, one of the only people who carried over from the March on Washington movement of the 40s to now. And that is our friend and ancestor who we've talked about extensively in this space, Anna Arnold Hedgeman. Whose name I doubt will be raised today on the National Mall, either because people don't know or people just haven't taken the time to want to know how important she was to that ritual in 63, how she was important to the ritual in 41 that created the template for the ritual in 63. And anybody ever come to the United States Capitol to protest to have a march owes a debt in part to Anna Arnold Hedgeman because she was in, she was critical to this. And she also wrote a long memo where she critiqued the fact, where are the sisters to speak today? And there were sisters who spoke. We'll get to that in a second. Again, I got the sand running on the five-minute timer now. So I'm just going to spend a couple more minutes on this question of Dr. King's speech, which the social structure has conveniently excised, shrunken to the last part of speech that Clarence Jones didn't write, That 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 mimics almost word for word a speech he had given in Detroit a month before with C.L. Franklin at his side where they had a, a very important convening where you hear a lot of what you hear in I Have a Dream. He had preached it as a speech sermon in Detroit. It is a recording called A Great March on Washington. There's another recording that Barry, Gordy's, uh, Barry Gordy released under another label and I have it around here somewhere. Again, I'm not going to look around for it. You can find it on YouTube where you hear the Detroit speech. He mentions Emmett Till and others in that speech. But at any rate, So just a few more seconds on this speech, where the part that has been excised and looped, the end part, the I have a dream part, is the only thing people want to hear. But that's not what they're going to be talking about today on the National Mall. They're going to try to use that ritual moment to reinforce the larger art, the march for job and justice, the question of the structure of society right now. I don't know that they're gonna raise the larger international issues, although they should, cause they couldn't tend to shy around away from it. And that's what Dr. King was doing, which is one of the reasons his life was endangered and ultimately ended. The challenge of these ritual moments is to remember the momentum of what we have been doing before, what happened then and after that. And again, to be able to distinguish on what's important and what's not, how to tell the difference. Moments like this, sessions like this, help us by introducing us to other events, other lives, other memories, that allow us points of entry to do that other work for ourselves and then come together collectively and supporting each other, just like helping some spotting somebody when they're lifting at the gym or walking with somebody as their walking buddy or being their study buddy. We have a global study buddies now and we come together to reinforce that. So at any rate, Thinking about this in terms of the difference between now and then. Since 1963, there has been a steady attack, continuing attack on Black institutions. There's never been a time when Black institutions haven't been under attack. But there's also been this reinforcement of this propaganda that somehow the aspiration for proximity to whiteness was guiding or should guide. Non-white aspirations. This is the obsession in part with affirmative action. Although what the white nationalists are after isn't just the educational institutions. Maybe even it's not primarily the educational institutions. What these white nationalists want to do, and you see it now as they begin to launch assaults on hiring practices, launch on uh, assaults on employers. They want to get rid of the non-white presence in any area of U.S. life that they can. They don't want you working. I mean, if they thought it would help them, they would, it's saying it almost runs out. They thought they might attack hiring black people at Walmart. I was going to work, uh, going to school Tuesday morning and passed by the Walmart on Georgia Avenue. And a couple got on the bus because I'm never paying for parking again. I mean, come on now. I can take the 70 and go or the 79 and go to campus, get off. And it's a beautiful thing. Plus, I get to talk to the people on the bus Two, a couple got on and said you know plus you pay me and then you want me to give you two stacks three stacks back to park <laughs> that's cool i get that money to the city dc but um a couple got on they are viewers of in class they had just finished working the overnight shift at walmart restocking the shelves cleaning the store and we had about a 20-minute conversation about labor practices about working conditions at walmart about uh, the range of issues and when i tell you these are two african people who came up from louisiana following uh the sister's mother because her mother said i gotta leave louisiana she's born and raised in louisiana it reminds me of Adolf reed's book the south jim and jane crow is real she's i gotta get the hell out of here moved to dc maybe 40 years ago they eventually came up they married they say together they make enough to be halfway comfortable living just working on their work their regular shifts they're you know ten to seven shifts at walmart I've been working for Wall for a number of years, then came to this one. But you know, the thing that struck me was we were having a conversation. I was reading a paper about the BRICS, uh, com- the bricks, uh, the BRICS summit. We were talking about substantive things, and this is not the university that I was going to. This is the university of the 70 bus. <laughs> There's a the university on the 70 bus. <laughs> And what we're doing, that's one of those things where you're not gonna fill out a spreadsheet, you're not gonna take a census. How many people are listening? How many people are how many people are having a conversation based on the conversations we have here regularly every week? We can never tally that. We could just see the impact. And I can randomly get on public transportation and run into people who are in this conversation. That lets me know that whatever Skipping and him was doing at the church over there in Massachusetts, that's beautiful. Keep doing it. But This is the difference between what Walter Massey was trying to put on the table, what their young sister was trying to put on the table and what y'all talking about. And just go ahead and talk. But you're talking on the periphery. You're in this social structure conversation. You're not at the core. You're not in the governance formation and the ritual. So, yeah, when I got this Martin Luther King fan, it made me think about that gloss, because, of course, behind him is this American flag. He didn't diss the American flag. He couched his stuff in patriotism and all that. But Dr. King. Who is still seen in terms of cultural meaning making? That's what a fan is. It's a it's a portable totem. It's a totem, kind of a portable shrine, rather. In terms of movement and memory, Martin Luther King, who is he to us? Anytime you can put a cat on a fan, and the only other male you might see like that is Jesus, then you understand. In fact, I gave a talk at the National Archives years ago called Abraham Lincoln, American Jesus. And I said, if Martin, if George Washington is the father, and Martin and, and, and uh Abraham Lincoln is the son in terms of the second birth and the the uh the uh the emancipation proclamation and the Lincoln second inauguration George Washington's your father Abraham Lincoln is your son but there's a trinity in the way that y'all messed up the cosmetic, cuz uh, the cosmology so you replaced the woman you got a holy ghost no problem I said who's the holy ghost you got a father you got a son well we should go with Martin Luther King Because in 63, he's standing in front of the ripped off riff on Abu Simbel and the other Egyptian temples where you got Abraham Lincoln sitting in his Ramesses pose in a chair in the Egyptian temple column looking place. And you bet you got the black man in front saying, we're here in front of this statue to tell you, you owe us. And the check came back in the fourth paragraph. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. So King King said, I'm standing up in front of this Abraham Lincoln rock to say Run me my coin. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that because I'm being a little flip about that. I don't want to get into this whole nativist because what they're talking about is not reparations. What some of this stuff is about is about restitution. And that's a whole nother principle. We got to think about that even from a legal perspective. I think the logics fail. But what King is saying is we're going to confront you now with what Randall Robinson called the debt. But do not confuse the debt with who we are to each other, who these people are confronting you with this. This is very important. Why? Randall Robinson wrote his book, The Debt, in 1999, 2000. I encourage people to talk about reparations. Start with that book. Don't start with any other book. Start with the debt. And then a couple of years later, after we had read that book with about 250 teenagers in Philadelphia, and he came to see us in a... He included us in the second book he wrote, which in many ways for me was the spark for me to begin to think about the difference between who we are to other people and who we are to each other. The debt is anchored in us, but it's the critique of this structure we find ourselves in. In some ways, it becomes a critical text for me to think through the concept of social structure, who we are to other people. The next book he wrote in his trilogy, in some ways, was called The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe to Each Other. There's the language that provide the foundation. As I told him years later, not, not even years later, a couple of years later, when he came back to freedom school, he was about his book on Haiti. As I told uh, Bob Miranda Robinson, that was the pillar that sparked the concept in my mind, along with Jacob Carruthers' work of governance, who we are to each other. And in that book, The Reckoning, he talks about what we owe to each other. Now, here's the class critique. Here's the, 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 the analysis of who, how we create a we. The third book in that trilogy, in some ways, is his book Quitting America, which is where he said, yeah, I'm leaving the country. And he went down, of course, St. Kitts, his wife, Hazel, Kalea, their daughter, who, of course, were at the ritual we talked about a couple of months ago that had a shallow Baptist church. You know, I'm leaving. I'll go back and forth. I'm still from Richmond. I still teach at Penn State and law school, but I'm going to live here in a black space where black people and we can think differently about the world. This is how you got to displace race. That's why the whole conversation around race, race and affirmative action, race and no, as long as you're talking about race, you've missed the point. That's what I was talking about. And when we went the Nile Valley for those two Saturdays and then back last Saturday for the recap and kind of analysis where we go from here, race is going to never, it's the trick bag you can never escape. The trick bag you can never escape. So who we are to each other. Dr. King in that speech is presenting a critique of the social structure. He's not really talking to us as us. It's not who we are to each other. This is the balance. This is the challenge. The book I almost brought up a minute ago, and I guess I'll bring it up now because it, it kind of fits in the rhythm of what we're talking about as I kind of wind too close. we want to use Anna Arnold Hedgeman to take us out today. Um, Booker Washington and Black Progress. I was uh, headed to class Thursday afternoon and my man Baba Kwasi, who always sets up books and sells books in front of Crampton Auditorium, next usually to uh to uh Baba Rafu, um they always selling books at Howard. This is a tradition that goes back even before, but one of the great booksellers who used to sell at that same folding table uh, roll row right there was the great Paul Coates, as he was starting Black Classic Press and working at Mona Spingard. He sold books there. But uh, I picked up this book, which I have, but it's in storage. And I, I wa- been—I wanted to consult this a little while back. It's called Booker T. Washington and Black Progress, Up From Slavery, 100 years later. It's the 100th anniversary. Uh, Fitzhugh Brundage edited this. It was the 100th anniversary of Up From Slavery. And they put together a conference in the late 90s and then published this uh, book of 10 chapters of papers evaluating the legacy of Booker Washington. And, of course, Booker Washington who argued that many people of our people during coming out of enslavement in the 1880s and 90s, Tuskegee founded 1881, they're not going to ever go to school. So we got to help them where they are, cast down your bucket where you are, so to speak. And so it's very interesting to see this balanced critique, but also not, he said, they say it's not a defense of Washington, but Washington is a complex figure. And one of the things he said, they talk about is he wrote up from slavery for what we would call the social structure. It's an attempt to expand his profile, consolidate his power and authority, to get resources for black communities, even as he's clandestinely funding criti- uh, challenges Supreme Court, a case like Giles versus. Harris, the Alabama voting rights case. Booker Washington's paying for the lawyers, but he can't let nobody know he's doing it. It's a complicated legacy of Booker Washington. But that's a social structure. But one of the things that the editor Brundage brings up in the in the introduction is he had written shortly before that or had written for him, combination. And by the way, it's a great new book on Emmett Scott, Macy O'Daly's book. I encourage y'all to get it. Elaine, uh, Elaine Jones, the Panther, who Emmett Scott was one of her ancestors, told me to get that book. Emmett Scott was Booker's man. I'm thinking about getting ghostwriters and stuff like that. Emmett Scott played roles in that. But at any rate, Booker Washington had written a, a different book, another memoir, another autobiography, the story of my life and work. That's more of a governance. I'm talking to black people about black things in addition to others, but I'm talking for, up from slavery is kind of like a trick bag of stuff. He's kind of creating this hagiographical autobiography. I did this. I want to thank you for this. White people helped me and black people got to do it. He's trying to position himself for money. And influence. It's complicated. Anyway, I thought about that in the context of what I'm about to say. The difference between governance and social structure, we know. Governance is who we are to each other, our ways of knowing, our movement, memory, our use of science and technology, our cultural meaning making. Social structure is the context in which we operate our governance formations. Nubian narrative in class, this work is governance work. Everybody's invited to be in it. In class, we're listening, we're commenting. Ultimately, though, we're talking to we. And if you can't talk to we in a way, that other people can hear, that's their problem, it's not your problem. Those parts of it we want to have conversations with other people on. You just gotta deal with it, which is why when Massey got up, when the sister got up, made those comments, and there wasn't no clapping, that's when I let you know that's a social structure audience you in. And on that panel, when nobody responded except the one dude who she called by name, these brilliant black scholars, that let me know y'all don't wanna say that. Cause we all know it's true. You're chasing the white cloud. White cloud chasing is something that you know, hey, it's a time honored tradition, and particularly in the petty bourgeois community, but also throughout miseducated and diseducated communities of African descent. We understand this isn't a beating up of any individual, it's a it's an observation that we must name the social structure. And so when Anna Hedgman in 1962 and 63 is made aware. If there's going to be a march on Washington. She's still working with A. Philip Randolph. Now y'all remember who Anna Ar- Arnold Hedgman was. You know, Dr. Hedgman, who worked in the Truman administration, Federal Security Agency, worked on the Fair Practices Employment Committee, which came out of the first March on Washington in 1941, when she was working with um, A. Philip Randolph. Became the first black woman appointed to a city position in the city of new york when she worked in administration and she was the only woman on the executive committee on the march on washington 1963. we know her two memoirs i love it when people find these and take pictures of them post them in social media the gift of chaos this is the second one she wrote 1977. This is the one she wrote in 1964, The Trumpet Sounds, A Memoir of Negro Leadership. Her papers are at Wilberforce at the very museum that we broadcast from, uh, when we were out there with uh, uh, Larry Kweku, Larry Crow, and Mama Lolabise Oloode, who, when we were there for the um, Martin Delaney ritual, her papers are out there at Wilberforce. I encourage y'all to go out there and look for them. And we think about the difference between 60 years ago, on Monday, and today, that draw people into this space. We know that white reconstruction and white lash continues. We've been following the attacks on affirmative action, uh, the whole targeting of educational systems, the attacks on school boards, the attacks on school superintendents and teachers. Uh, we are not really following, as we should, the global developments. The BRICS summit, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They they were winding up. They were just in. Um, south africa and we talked about that when we were in egypt it was very interesting to have that conversation in fact if i can pull it up quickly i'll see if i can find uh yes six new countries are joining the BRICS. who's joining the BRICS? who's coming in you've got um saudi arabia
2: mm.
1: you've got uh let me see here we go argentina now, Brazil and India were wary because what they don't want, Brazil and India, like, we don't want China to be running the bricks. We want China. You got to be here. G.J. Ping got the highest civilian award. In fact, if I had my Financial Times from the other day, I don't think I have it around here. They had it in the New York Times. Of course, the New York Times is always a day or two late when it comes to international stuff that affects us. But they showed Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, draping this award around uh, G.J. Ping's neck. You know, if, if the BRICS, everybody who applied for membership, it's a couple of dozen countries. Mexico talking about it. By the way, just very quickly, footnote, it made me think about it when I mentioned Mexico. Apparently, they're in a textbook fight in Mexico, too. Let me take about 30 seconds here and go to see if I can find it quickly on the international page of today's paper. I thought it was the heat wave. No, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, long time. No, 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 no. Emerging nations. Iran. After no and oh man, that's too bad. All right, give me. I just had to slow it down for about maybe ten more seconds. I thought it was. uh ah, nope. I thought it was in here, but it might have actually been in the Financial Times. They're battling over curriculum in Mexico. Apparently, the president of Mexico. These people don't like. Maybe it's in the Financial Times. Give me a second here. Just a second. Because it might not be yeah, Sarkozy. Uh, no. Okay. Although, while I had this up, Wagner's lucrative Africa operations left in limbo after Prigozhin's demise. Prigozhin's plane, of course, was shot down. I'm going to say less about that. But uh, the last time Yevgeny Prigozhin was pictured alive was a video published on Monday from what was rumored to be Mali. In which the camouflage clad warrior lord pledged to make russia even greater on every continent and africa even freer while brandishing an assault rifle 48 hours later Prigozhin's private plane crashed in mysterious circumstances in a field northwest of moscow killing him and everyone on board and now what is that going to do with wagner in west africa i'm saying there's a lot of intrigue in this because, you know, now people are trying to say who's going to invade is France, the is United States going to go in, is the economic community of West African states led by Nigeria. They're going to go in and try to put down the coup in Mali and then the people in Mali is like, uh, or Niger rather, uh, in Niger and the people in Niger. Many people saying, come on, if y'all want to fight, we're going to fight all of y'all. This ain't about no coup. This is about our independence. So it's very complicated. But Wagner was playing a big role in that because they're extracting wealth from Africa. They're extracting wealth. As John Clark said, in some stories, it ain't no good guys, but their man's been killed by the other bull, or at least that's the the conjecture. But one thing's for sure. He's there's a doornail. And does that disrupt Wagner? Anyway, I thought about that while I was looking. I'm going to try one more time because maybe what I can do is I'll just go to the international news on the table of contents because I wanted to see if I could. Uh, this is Saturday. Yeah, let me see. Just, just, um, yeah, mm, that now nah. I make mistakes, but I usually don't make those kind of mistakes. I was thinking maybe it wouldn't be in national. It would be in <laughs> Tim Scott. Nobody's talking about Tim Scott. Sorry, Tim. We're not going to talk about it people either we're in solidarity with the people who are not talking about you oh you found it good so the um let me wind this up the BRICS summit as i said uh a couple of dozen people want to join countries want to join but who joined uh this week was argentina argentina joined brazil said okay they cape for them it's okay egypt joined we just left Egypt. We saw the devaluation of their currency. One of the things the BRICS have is the a, is a development bank, uh, Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil, before uh, the Trump of the tropics, so to speak, ran against and tried to put her in jail, and cause of corruption, all this kind of thing. She's now the head of the development bank. They want to loan money to countries in their currency. So the real, if you're loaning to Brazil, the rand, if you're loaning to South Africa, the renimbi, the currency of China is a st- as a default currency in the development bank that BRICS has created. Uh, the third of the five, Ethiopia. Ethiopia has joined the BRICS. Iran has joined the BRICS. And if you heard some screaming in London and Washington, D.C., that's because Iran was added with, with this huge, vast, proven oil reserves added to Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formation. And the last one, probably heard a little grumbling too, rumlin and grumbling, the Saudis. No, I'm sorry. The Saudis are the next to last. The next is the United Arab Emirates. What does mm-hmm. it mean for Iran, UAE, and Saudi Arabia to join the BRICS? The world is shifting. Now. Isn't, that world. What, isn't that what got Gaddafi killed? How about that? Yes. Whatever Gaddafi's flaws were, whatever his ambitions were or not, one thing he said was, we must all be united. In fact, he drove from Libya to Ghana for the meeting of the African Union to show we got roads. You ain't got to fly over. So, yeah, this guy got to go. We we got water. It's a desert. No, there's water underneath the desert. We're going to use this money to develop these aquifers and bring them. We're going to turn the desert into a green bloom. Oh, this guy. What the hell? So,
0: so what are they going to do with this? Because there's no singular figure now no. to to get rid of.
1: Well, I think this is the challenge there. Um,
0: which Which I also think is instructive since we're talking about the 60th anniversary or commemoration of the March on Washington the singular figure being taken out is, is an easy, you know, remedy. That's right. But these entities, these systems coming together. And as black people anywhere in the world, what should I, how should we be watching bricks and the, the gathering, the convening?
1: Well, you know, like I said, a lot, a lot of folks in Libya, Baba Oz, probably first and foremost, but a lot of people, have been talking about bricks, and of course, Jackie Cole is over there in South Africa. She's been helping us understand the implications in some ways. But I think the central challenge we have in terms of study is to be exposed to enough different material so that we can begin to make up our own minds, not just as individuals, but through conversation. Which means, which requires us doing what we're doing today. There's people in here right now. I brought up the BRICS in class, my introduction to african States class uh, the other morning, because the BRICS summit is this week. And I asked them, how many of you all know what BRICS is? Not a whole lot of hands went up, but if I can get one hand, then that's good. I'm going tell everybody else what BRICS is. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So what does that mean? It's an economic... Formation, it's a political formation, it's a formation of alliances to deal with everything from trade and lowering borders to trade to lending resources to each other. And I mean, I'm talking ideologically, because we know that there's a lot of problems. We start overlaying class and repression on these kind of things. But what we are saying, however, is that this is a formation that is designed in part to break the monopoly of the contemporary world system that comes out of Western Eurasia, Europe. So we have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. You've got this hammerlock in the UN where all the countries are, but you've got a security council at the center. There has been to date no effective counterweight to a Western-centered global social structure whether it be the International Money Fund and the World Bank or the United Nations, they are all centered in the Western institutions, whether it be Brussels, whether it be the United States, or whether it be New York, whether it be Washington, D.C. you talk talking about the IMF, you talk talking about the World Bank, you're coming to D.C. You're talking about the U.N., you're going to uh, New York, you're going to Brussels or London to DOE or Geneva to start talking about the International Criminal Court. One of the reasons that uh, Vladimir Putin wasn't at the meeting today and sent Sergei, his, his uh, the Secretary of State, is because they didn't put a warrant on him for arrest. And if he set foot in South Africa, they got to arrest him. The United States putting pressure. He's here arrest him. No, yeah, I'm not coming. I'm going to send the other guy. Putin, not a good guy. As John Clark said, in some stories is not no good guys. But what you're talking about now is geopolitics in the sense of rail politic. Nation states fighting each other. State formations trying to create some autonomy. We have to be thinking about BRICS as a moment to consider the social structure we live in and how we can best use it to our advantage. What Does that mean in a very concrete way? If you are buying your draws three for five dollars at Walmart, where my brother and sister who I saw earlier in the week are working overnight to restock the shelves, and they say make the still look like a new store, I say I don't like how to have overtime. Now they don't, we may get over 30 minutes now, but they bring in more help rather than pay overtime. It's fascinating. When we were talking about this, but at any rate, you have to ask yourself, is the price of cheap draws work worth? people working in sweatshops, other places, or the United States saying, we're not going to subsidize or help in any country unless we have a strategic material interest there, strategic metals or all this kind of thing. And then we're gonna couch it in, we coming in to help y'all cause of human rights abuses. That's a lie. You're coming in to help us because corporations want to continue to extract resources. And so we have to think about BRICS. First thing we have to know is what is BRICS? not just what the countries are that are in it, what are their objectives, and you can get that on websites, you can look at the BRICS website, you can read any sources, I'm just introducing a couple as terms of points of entry, and then how do it free us, meaning what, how can we use it? This isn't the Bandung Conference of 1954, I'm sorry, 55, where these countries came together and said, we're not with the Soviet Union, and we're not with the United States, we are with ourselves. This was seen as a threat. When Martin King is having conversation, when Malcolm X is having conversation about these things, when Anna Hedgman is traveling to Africa, as we talked about, when we talked to our deep dive on her, do, do you know Anna Arnold Hedgeman? This is a threat to a domestic state in terms of the United States that sees any notion of undermining American, by American, I mean American political and economic formation power around the world. Dr. King is a threat because he's coming out critiquing the United States foreign policy. As long as you're talking about domestic policy that's all right we can talk about jobs we can talk about letting three more negroes into harvard but what you're not going to do is talk about solidarity global solidarity movements and this is the challenge that even anna arnold Hedgeman raises in a minute i'll, I'll come to her again I'll put my timer on again so i spend much time on this but bricks bricks represents an opportunity for us to hear and this is where punching through the noise becomes important the conversation on building a different kind of world and in strengthening different kind of relationships has never stopped in human memory. The contemporary movement, which really takes off after World War II, when Europe and the United States have punched each other in the face so much that these other non-white countries see points of departure from these, this structure that they might be able to be able to, to create. Which is why it's important for the Western countries to immediately come in with the IMF, the World Bank, the UN to try to shore up this international order. But that order now has reached probably the limits of its centrality. The BRICS represents, for good or for bad, a challenge, a sustainable challenge to the old Western arrangement, which arguably doesn't just go back to 1945 in terms of UN World Bank International Money Fund, but goes back to the criminal enterprise of settler colonialism. The last 500 years are reaching a point of inflection. And while it's cute for us to say, oh, look at Donald Trump's mugshot, which by the way, come on y'all, yeah, you know how much money Donald Trump going to make off them t-shirts? He took that mugshot and he, he thinking in his mind, t-shirts, t-shirts, campaign posters. Meanwhile, we laugh. We're like, Yeah, laugh all you want, make it rain. But the point is this, while we are caught in a moment of conundrum and paradox at the idea of seeing the militarized city of Atlanta with all those black cops with their hands in their vests and sitting outside and saying, see, they finally got him, finally Willis got him, Finding Willis is the police. Young Thug still waiting to go to trial. Two years of the charges, you know, people flipping on each other. She charged 28 in Young Thug stuff and they still can't even see the jury trying to go through jury selection. A couple of thousand people apparently have cycled through this jury selection process. I'm not critiquing Young Thug. I'm not critiquing Fonnie Willis. I'm asking the question that can we pause enough to understand that just because it's Donald Trump, let us not abandon the fact that the law, in fact, I think, I think the lesson from the arrest of Donald Trump last week. One of the main lessons is that the law is a tool. The law is not the order of the universe. The law is not infallible. Hell, the law isn't, all, isn't often consistent, but what the law is is a tool. And what you're seeing, there is a moment of shot and fruit when you see Donald Trump having to go into the same Fulton County jail that your mom and them had to go get somebody out of behind the cotton curtain in georgia and there's there's a few probably clan adjacent hillbillies who had strokes uh the other night and you know we wish them a speedy recovery um, in case of Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, however, I'll quote Gus Scott hearing when he said "Of Frank Rizzo, we sent him our coldest regards because we remember Patrick Dora's mind. We remember Albert LeWema. So we hope sir, that this black woman sets natural fire to you. Cause it ain't got nothing to do with a stolen election or try to steal an election. This got to do with the fact that you've been raining terror on non-white people for decades since you stood up in Crown Heights with them police yelling at David Dinkins. So, so let's be very clear about this Rudy Giuliani. We, we send you our coldest regards brother Giuliani, to riff on Cornel West. But anyway, which I know you got to be signifying when you call that cat brother. But the point is, when we understand that the global, the global study enhances how we understand how our local struggles connect with the global struggle, we understand the value of studying the BRICS and what's going on. It, we should stay tuned with that because, of course, they're all going to meet at the United Nations. All the countries come in for the annual September meeting in New York. So we'll come back to this next month. And talk about this some more. But I want to end with um just a note on the march on Washington and maybe end with something that we're not going to see today. Because 60 years later, in our communities, even including our communities, the quote unquote organizational communities, the civil rights community, so to speak, you see more women. Like I said, Kristen Clark came out of the lawyer's conference of civil rights. She's now the deputy attorney general, rain and fire with consent decrees and coming into communities, very important. And people say, well, you know, women didn't speak at the March on Washington. Well, that's not technically true. Like I said, Anna Hedgeman wrote a memo. In fact, she she, 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 uh, includes the memo. If I can find it quickly, I might not be able to find it quickly in here. Uh, She includes the memo in her, yeah, here it is, in the trumpet sounds, August 16th, 1963. She writes to A. Philip Randolph. There she is. A. Philip Randolph, Director, of National March on Washington from Anna Arnold Hedgeman, Member, Administrative Committee, March on Washington. Reason, proposed program, Lincoln Memorial. She says that a Negro woman make a brief statement. She said, in light of the role of Negro women in the struggle for freedom, and especially in light of the extra burden they have carried because of the castration of our Negro men in this culture, it is incredible that no woman should appear as a speaker at the historic March on Washington meeting at the Lincoln Memorial. Since the big six civil rights leaders have not given women the quality of participation which they have earned through the years, now, you know who was also included in that was Dorothy Height, National Council of Negro Women, more on her in a second. I would like to suggest the following, that a Negro woman make a brief statement and present the other heroines just as you have suggested that the chairman might do. It has occurred to me that no woman or man could object to Mrs. Megger Evers, the Evers, the widow of our freedom martyr, for this role. Her performance on television just after the murder of her husband proves her ability to make every one even one sentence memorable she mentioned perhaps diane nash coming in very important but at any rate and i'll you, will, you go back into the narrative archive to see our long conversation and what led up to the 63 march and how anna Hedgeman played a role in that how how she writes about this in the gift of chaos how In 62, they were talking about a march. Uh, Randolph wants to do a march by the spring of 63. She's telling them, You need to talk to Martin Luther King. You need because they they and the NAACP wasn't going to be in it. Roy Wilkins is like, We're doing our own work. They're stealing our thunder. Anna Hedgman is like, No, you need to be at the table. There is a march to Washington in 1963 on Washington in 63 that has everything to do directly with Anna Arnold Hedgman making these men sit and talk with each other. And figuring out how to pull the logistics, but let me let me let me not leave the sisters on this because she suggests Merle Evers. Merle Evers gets caught up in traffic. She she missed her speaking slot because they did put her on. Bayard Rustin was fighting it the whole way. No, we don't need this because you know Bayard Rustin is uh, 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 a fellow Randolph's man. We start talking about gender in a governance formation. I'm not talking about social structure. I have no interest at all in any social structure commentary on the March on Washington and what it means before my interest in us having a conversation. Because gender is a challenge, as Dr. Watkins says, Lethea Watkins says, quoting her colleague, uh, the great Oyewonki Oyewumi. Gender, we call gender a social construct, that means it's constantly being renegotiated. Sitting at Audrey's funeral yesterday and seeing all those men on the podium, but then seeing the women come up one by one, and you see the balance and the energy shift, seeing the role of sisters, including Dr. Bird in that, but seeing how much more we have to do to build community, but understanding that in that governance formation, this is a rock-solid governance formation to which we retreat when we really have to get some work done because these Negroes here are the ones that will fight you and then pray for your soul after they've killed you. But they going to fight you first, not the Negroes pleading for admission. Is to understand that to talk about gender, even in terms of women not being included in the March on Washington, speaker list became a conversation about how women have been at the center of the organizational work. So yes, Merle Evers, they said, okay, all right, fine. All right, okay, okay. Merle Evers, she got caught in traffic, couldn't get there. So who spoke for the second time that day? Daisy Bates from Arkansas. from Arkansas, Daisy Bates was the speaker. She spoke there. It's very interesting to hear because what Anna Harden on did, she got with two sisters who raised money for the civil rights movement, Corinne Smith and Jerry Stark from the Labor Council, American Negro Labor Council. And they was like, look, how are we going to put pressure on these people? So what you see, you hear Dr. King for a split second in all the little clips from the news. But what you probably haven't seen is Rosa Parks spoke very briefly at the March on Washington. She was introduced. It was downplayed as Anna Olin Hedgman critiques in The Gift of Chaos, her book. Lena Horne spoke one word. She got to the podium, got to the microphone and said, freedom. Dropped the mic. <laughs> they like, say, wait a minute, what was that? Josephine Baker. Because now you got gaps. You'll see them again today, where it's something, you know, people not doing anything or you got transitioning. They give the mic to Josephine Baker. And for two minutes, this daughter of East St. Louis leaving the United States in the wake of race violence and massacres becomes a huge star overseas in Western Eurasia in Europe, a global star. She comes back in military dress because they gave her the high honors in the French military for being part of the resistance, perhaps even a spy, as recent scholarship says. But she spoke for almost two minutes. She gave the longest speech by a woman that day at the March on Washington. And she talked about coming back to the United States and thanks for welcoming me back to have this conversation. Never thought I'd see today. Gloria Richardson, the great Gloria Richardson, who made transition shortly a little while ago. Gloria Richardson, the young sister, the hero of Cambridge, Massachusetts, the intellectual, the warrior. They don't know what she gonna say. Gloria Richardson gets to the podium. Gloria Richardson says, hello. And somebody cuts the mic. <laughs> you can't let this young buck talk. This ain't John Lewis, who didn't write his speech. The famous moment of confrontation when John Lewis is getting ready to use the speech from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to set fire to the whole thing a little bit, singe it a little bit. And A. Philip Randolph entreats him, pleads to him, no, I've waited my whole life for this, don't do it. And him and Julian Bond rewriting parts of the speech. Now, they wasn't gonna set fire to the thing, but they're gonna be a little bit heavier. And what Randolph, Rustin, and them uh, want because they worried about their white allies. This is the conundrum when the social structure and the government structure overlap. But he still gave a speech that Anna Arnold Hedgman writes. In fact, let's let uh, Miss Hedgman speak for herself if I can find it quickly on the march on Washington. So I named some of the sisters who were at the march. She says, and it might be at the end of this chapter because she talks about Martin Luther King. Let me see, let me see, let me see. No. It's not in the trumpet sounds. This was 64 right after. I think it's in The Gift of Chaos. Where she Ah, yes, this is a good place for us to bring it in for Landy. Yes. She says that the challenge she remembers came to me in terms of the speeches of the day. She says, from John Lewis, young representative of students, white and Negro, who were even then marching, suffering in and out of jails and challenging adults who had taken them for granted for too long. John has said to us, we, he's what he said. Quote, we march today for jobs and freedom. Hundreds of thousands of our brothers are not here, but they are not, they are receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. These people who weren't at Martha's Vineyard, talking about a friend of that. Sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi are in the fields today, working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. The danger of silence and the reality of economic and social program problems cried out for change. Could we achieve those changes? She's, this is what she's saying. This is what Anna had Hedden said. I came away from the March on Washington What John Lewis was talking about in terms of social class. That was the thing that resonated with me. And of course, Gloria Richardson, who only got to say hello, Lena Horn, who only got to say freedom, while they waiting on Martin Luther King, they are hustled up away from the March on Washington and put in taxis and told to leave because they are seen as being disruptive. Wow. I hope nobody asked nobody to leave for the day. So let me wind up and end with this. The day after the march on Washington, Dorothy Height calls a meeting. Because after the march, they go to the White House. But Dorothy Height is like, "What the hell y'all going? Are the men going? No problem." That's the show stuff. That's the social structure stuff. It's not. It's not that it's unimportant because we're gonna get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 after that, and a bloody Freedom Summer of '64, followed uh, preceded by a bloody uh, the death of mega Evers in the summer of '63. Then after I Have a Dream, they blow up those. Uh, blow up four little girls and shoot two black boys in, 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 in Birmingham. So we see, of course, Kennedy's killed in, in November 63. The thing is roiling over. You come up into 64 and the Civil Rights Act of 64 after Freedom Summer is passed after Johnson, of course, is president. But Dorothy Height said, okay, y'all going into the White House, whatever. Tomorrow, I want the sisters to get together. And she calls a meeting where black women come together to say, okay, after the march, now what? At that meeting, in Anna Arnold Hedron's papers is the speech, part of the speech in a letter form that Polly Murray gives. Pauli Murray is at that meeting that the sisters have the day after the March on Washington. So while we're talking about the 28th, which is Monday, it might be nice on Tuesday to talk about the women planning what comes next. Because if we go back to 41 when Phil Randolph and Arnold Hedgman and them threatened to march on Washington in 41. And in response, Roosevelt signs Executive Order 8802 desegregating the military a huge leap in steps as the, free, the Fair Employment Practices Commission that Arnold Hedgman is in leadership of afterwards. It's important to remember that when Randolph calls off the march in response to what Roosevelt did, the black women like Mary Bethune is like, "Ho, oh, oh, ho, Chief, hold on, you, you calling off the march? We was, you know what? No problem, go ahead. They have a two day conference at Howard University at Rankin Chapel. What do we do next? These black women are no joke. And in our governance formation, we owe it to ourselves to study ourselves and our communities. And sometimes it's gonna take a quote unquote gendered lens, but it can't be one that the social structure is jumping in trying to say us too. Yeah, because you know, Bella Abzug and then there's Gloria Stein, oh yeah, 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 in a minute. What you doing? We're talking to ourselves. Can I come? No, you can't come. <laughs> because if you come, you're going to want to talk. And if you talk, somebody in here going to get confused. We need to have our own conversation. Anna Arnold Hedgman needed to set fire to her comrade, A. Philip Randolph, needed to put Martin Luther King and check around these sisters. And as, he, as she did it, what you see emerge 60 years later is the potential if we remember to not just continue from 63, but to learn the lessons that have happened between 63 to now so that we can begin to continue, to continue to enhance our our struggle, which isn't a struggle ultimately for freedom or liberation, but a struggle to be human in the world without restraint. That's a different set of circumstances. It doesn't lead you to Harvard. It leads you here, to each other. That's that.
0: Ashe, Mm. well i just bought the book the gift of chaos uh oh, you found it yes no i didn't find it as um used because it's out of print so i had to pay 60 bucks for it which uh you know so you got yours when when it probably didn't cost much
1: yeah yeah well people have been finding it but it's yeah. definitely the people that are not on it but now you know what i know you will look into it i think the gift of chaos is oxford University. Out of
0: print. it's out of print though right
1: well, it, yes. But and
0: can it be back in print? Yes, be, I think it can. So we're going to say less. We're going to say less. That, uh, say just, that. We're going to say that. Yes, we're going to have that. We're going to have that in our library at some point.
1: No question.
0: Uh, Also, you, you said ad infinitum, which is uh, Latin. And I was wondering what would the Egyptians say? Because uh, you said oh. today it was going to be, you know, I have a dream. And I was like, you're talking, you're speaking Latin. We're speaking in English. Ah. Can we start the pepper? Can we start to pepper the ancient? Into our 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 dialogue and our conversations okay. with each other, um, but we first have to have the words like "ank ujab seneb," right? Uh, which right. which now I utter every day no on way. my show. No Thank you.
1: That's beautiful people, knowing that right. This is ancient Egyptian. Um, well, Egyptians have a number of words for forever and eternity, but not maybe perpetual. Let me see. In that sense, I'm thinking of "nehehe" um, or "jet," both of which can be translated as forever. There's Maquette. Which see it's interesting because the language shows the cultural distinction. Like you, we were talking last night, uh, last night, last week about Heheru and you said home instead of house, and connected that just brought it all the way through. Ad infinitum, you know, meaning you know, infinitely, uh, as it, it's going to be repeated over and over again. Ad infinitum. If we say maquette, the word maquette, it means it, the literal translation is after a f t e r, but. The time signature can be used, and Dr. O'Benger used to talk about this all the time, which is why I've been fascinated with that term ever since. It can be used to talk about preceding you in time and space, what's going on at this moment in time and space, or what follows you in time and space. He used to get a metaphor. He'd be like, if the two of us are in coming into a building and you open the door and say, after you, that means you're coming behind me. Or if you say, I'm going to go In front of you, you're gonna come after me, is it? Or we go through the same time. The time signature, maquette, it's almost like in Ebonics, the verb be. So instead of saying they repeat Martin Luther King's speech ad infinitum, we can say Martin Luther King spoke to Maquette, meaning what he spoke that day in 63, he brought Forward the ancestors, meaning he dipped into the past, and today he's still speaking. So instead of ad infinitum, it's like he spoke to Maquette, but that would change the cultural meaning because ad infinitum mm-hmm. almost makes it sound like we got it, we got it, we got it. Whereas Maquette is like we need to listen again, we want to hear it again. Ad infinitum almost has a critical thing, but or we could say at antibiotics that Monday King, man, Dr. King be be giving that I have a dream speech when he, what he gave it in the moment. And he's giving it today. He would be giving that speech. Dr. King is dead now, nah, but that speech, he would be giving that speech. I Meaning anyway, what? The B form, that infinitive, is past, present, and future. Which why you needed bionics for certain things. You can't say in English. Facts. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Yeah. This,
0: this was very. Um, I was just in in community with uh, Ahmad to see how we're gonna. Because that that woman piece, um, critical, and when you brought up Bayard Rustin, you know it's. You know, you you think about people who are oppressed in one area who will oppress people, and that's the problem with oppression. It it oppresses you to oppress other people because there's always this get back that's inherent, right? Like, right. which is what the fear is. You know, we can't give black people power because they're gonna enslave us. <sighs> I get that's it, right. but we got, a lot, right. got right. a lot of work to do. That's
1: well, right. let me just mention one other thing very quickly. If you if you all find yourselves in New York in Brooklyn, I know folks been going to that Hove exhibit or whatever. If you can sneak into the bookstore, and you can get them online as well. But if you could sneak into the bookstore at the Brooklyn Museum, you, you can pick up a copy of this book, Making the Movement, How Activists Fought for Civil Rights with Buttons, Flyers, Pens, and Posters. I mention it because it's got great visuals. Those of you who are teachers, want young people, particularly to the grab, there's a picture on page 105 of one of the uh, posters, All Citizens of Cleveland, March for Freedom, Sunday, July 14, July 1963, Right, March to Cleveland Stadium. There were a lot of marches that supported the March on Washington. And what this, uh, here's one for the March on Washington, Wednesday, August 28, 63. You see some of the names, March on Washington, for Jobs and Freedom. Of course, the buttons from the March on Washington are there. Um, And then the campaign for a strong civil rights bill by Christmas. Again, it wasn't just the march. It was the policy they wanted. Then later on, you got boycotts, freedom stay out, better schools. This is coming in the wake of that. Here's the souvenir program from March the 5th, 1964. Souvenir program, March on Frankfort, Kentucky. Meaning what? The March on Washington was very important to understand that you have to put it in the larger context. Illinois Rally for Civil Rights and so forth and so on. But if you get this book, you can trace through the kind of uh, cultural meaning making in terms of posters and, and buttons and flyers that give you a way to mark how we, Communicating with we created this momentum of rituals. So marches aren't just about the march itself; it's about connecting communities and organizing. That's wanted to mention that, and, and and also tell people this is a good book to have.
0: Yes, and and the power of like knowing so that you don't think we just started here. Like right, even bringing up the forty the nineteen forties march to even know that like this is not just something that just happened. And it keeps happening, and we gotta we gotta uh, be reminded. And also, we can't challenge the folk that they put the pick me Negroes that they put in front of us, right? Unless we have the the ability to, to do that. So I guess we'll end with this sister getting up at this. Oh yeah, yeah, let's watch that. Because uh, you you to, you told us about it. Oh, I don't want to do that. Let me. it's
1: uh, all right. There uh, you go. There, that oh, was the
0: panel. I don't the it. There we go. Okay. Let me. Right. uh uh here we go uh, some time, uh, time is. issues here yeah, so make. let's get your questions and make them brief and your answers will be brief and i will be brief okay i will be very brief my name is Nadia simone i wrote my question so i can remember it um and i've
2: learned a lot from you all thank you for this space
0: how can we resurrect black educational standards and practices that fell by the wayside after integration was implemented? It seems once the the focus was to get into white spaces, our communities abandoned our own standards and practices we had. And Jay, I would love for you to answer as well as everybody on the panel. Thank you. (laughs) You get the question? Well, uh,
2: if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's how do we, how do you preserve, Black educational standards that were in place before desegregation integration, um, is that right? Resurrect. Resur- okay. yeah, I mean, that resurrect. debate is happening. I live, in, uh, I live in the East Bay in California, and that debate is happening quite a bit in terms of small school closures and school closures in Oakland. And the question is whether community schools that service a small number of mostly Black students, those are being closed, and that pushes to try and create big integrated middle schools and elementary schools. And I think that... Um, you know, I think that, that that debate, you know, at first you come down and you say, well, there should be big integrated schools. You know, if you're, I don't know, a person on the left like myself, it's just sort of your default it actually makes you quite boring sometimes. But, you know, you think that. But, you know, I talked to a lot of the teachers. Some of the teachers went on hunger strike. And I think that they were sort of asking the same question that you were, right, which was that um, within a community that knows these students, right, that, understands what they've been going through, is there a way that you can have a school that is dedicated to them? And then why, when it comes to what schools have to close, like, why are those always the first schools that are chosen, right? And that—that that is what happened in Oakland. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not something that I think I have a clear answer to, but I think that it's something that is, you know, being discussed quite, you know, quite fervently around the country, especially, especially in the East Bay right now.
0: Anybody have a different
1: response? Anybody? Okay. Anybody? Anybody? West, right. Anybody? Have your, oh, anybody? No. anybody? <laughs> My sisters like, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> and he's the only one who
0: answered was a non-African. Well, she point, you know, she asked him, and I know that it's because affirmative action is uh, was dismantled through the lens of Asian, you know, um, oppression. I guess.
1: Well, that's what Bloom tried to do with a handful of folk. And, and, and Kang made that point earlier in the critique Said it isn't that there aren't people who think that way, but it wasn't on the, but you're absolutely right. But you see, you saw that, right? And she's sitting there and she, she put it right there. They can't answer that question. They spent their lives trying to get in their master's and So what's the point of this panel?
0: You know, like, I'm like, why, why even convene people that aren't willing or able to answer the questions that will actually bring us forward?
1: Well, I mean, the panel was sponsored by some millionaires who do oh. need the black studies at the okay. University. So you you know the purpose. Oh. Oh. You, gotta, you gotta feel good about themselves. I mean, because Massey, right before her, had said, Look, and the thing I like about Massey, forget his politics, is that he was at Cal Berkeley. So one of these institutions y'all love so much, I was the provost there. That's the chief academic officer. And I was the president of an HBCU, Morehouse. And I was on the board of the community colleges of Chicago. You can't get around me. So they ignored him like they ignored her. He spoke just before she did. In other words, the things we ca- that should let everybody know what is the role of the Negro intellectual in the white space. When confronted with the we, even if they know they want to say something, you're not about to mess up my money, which is the point.
0: <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you start talking about the left and the right, I, that, I, that's when I check out because no this, is, this is not a left and right conversation. Nope. This is a question about humanity. No um, mm, thank you for that, uh, and and everything, and all of the books that I now have to buy. No. And, uh, <laughs> we're and, gonna
1: uh, bring into into narrative, though. Some of these things ain't got. You know, we're gonna do that.
0: Yeah, you know, absolutely. And uh, I, I appreciate the markers. You know. Uh, also, mind. tomorrow, of course, we have uh, Maroon's Medicine Chest with Doctor Sinjada. We yeah, got yeah. yoga and mental health uh, with Doctor Narissa, and then of course on Monday, office hours with you. the car and uh on and on we go
1: on and on happy new school year uh dr hunter and professor hunter and everybody else love y'all
0: yeah love you too
1: (laughs) see y'all see y'all see y'all okay all right